when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Waypoint Radio episode. I have no idea kind of what what number are we at? Like what how did you title the holiday 255. stuff? We're 255. No. What? <laughs> no, it's no, 532. What? <laughs> 532. Wow, we're uh, what's the we're close to the website, right? 5 37? What is it? Is that what it is? 538. It's 538. 538. Wow. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Screw that uh, guy. Yeah, uh, yeah we're going to Is everyone ready for our Nate Silver retrospective podcast? We're going to spend. I am your host, um, Patrick Klubbeck. I am joined by two of my co hosts. Rob Zachney is out, uh, at least for this recording, recovering. As you can tell, like, if you've been following on Twitter, Rob's been watching a lot of films <laughs> and tweeting about COVID uh, as they uh, have been uh, recovering uh, from it. Uh, Rob is on the mend. I can report Rob is feeling better, but uh, as is the nature for a lot of folks that have experienced uh, COVID, that can be kind of a an up and down process. Uh, Ren, we watched you go through that in real time uh, just before <laughs> the holidays. Like, I think I'm okay I'm not okay. Um, and so uh, our, uh, you know, prayers up for Rob. We got you, dog. Like, we're here doing the podcast for you. Um, and I'm going to get through it uh, with producer Ricardo Contreras. Hello. Hello. And other Welcome producer, back. Renata Price. I think that they should elect me the Speaker of the House. I, uh, yeah. Well, so Ren has predicted, uh, I don't know, are you predicting or... Uh, just do you, hoping. Does Ren just hoping. think, what are the chances that someone will die on the floor of the house before Kevin McCarthy uh, takes his 15th L? I'm I'm hoping. Uh, I'm you looked hope- this up, right? There is actually, so we are recording this, this in between yeah. the 7th and 8th vote, right? Is that what's happening? Are we 8 and 9? No, no, we are 8 and 9. They're about to start okay. number 9. So, so we're more, yeah, uh, we're just marking where, where we do this in the process. But you had a very interesting uh, factoid that you tweeted about. Oh yeah, so uh, this is in part uh, was was uh, this was a kind of a, t- a tag team from uh, uh, a friend of Kato and I's Vogon uh, on Twitter. Um, what is what is Vogon's at? Re- regardless, um, the last time this happened, uh, it was the direct antecedent to the Civil War and took mm-hmm. one hundred and thirty three votes. Holy uh, shit! Oh, well, what, <laughs> do we know what span of time? Two months. Yeah. Two months. Two months. Uh, it was, <laughs> I feel like we would. I feel like the, the. I think we would, if given two months of voting, I think we'd blow well past. Yeah, it's two hundred. It yeah. December third, eighteen fifty-five through February second, eighteen fifty. Sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two months. Uh, December third through February second, 
And uh, yeah, the last time it happened was a direct antecedent to the Civil War. No one died uh, on the floor during mm-hmm. that time period. There was no members of Congress. But uh, just some fun facts for you. Uh, you know all the former members of Congress who didn't get reelected? <laughs> so they're not allowed to start their new jobs because they are still technically members of Congress because their replacements have yet to be. Oh, so you can't sorted. be like a lobbyist or yes, whatever. There were you guys to, who you're were just in stasis. There were guys who were supposed to start their jobs today and uh, have been stopped from starting their jobs because of it. Uh, it is honestly the funniest what? possible outcome. Uh, uh. The, the funniest possible situation. That isn't that is incredible. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll we, you know, we'll, we'll do some real time updates on death of potential deaths of Congress people due to exhaustion <laughs> over failed votes. Um, the, who, not what? Who is the oldest member of the. Oh, House my God. All right. Well, uh, we are recording this after uh, many. Uh, at least I, I hope Rob clearly. You know, tweeting his thoughts about Black Adam. Um, but uh, did did everyone else have a decent? I have a question. So we had mm. it. We had a holiday. Varying degrees of how long that was for everyone else. But we at least had like uh, a pretty decent period where everyone got some time away from from work. Uh, I have like a deeply like a deep strategy when it comes to the vacation. Like yeah. I, I imagine some people go into it like arms wide open. What what comes? What may I will, the, the the time off will take me where it goes. Obviously, holidays complicate that. We were brought into various family or friend obligations, but outside of that, uh, kind of, I'm curious. Like, what is the holiday strategy? Does does uh, kind of go in with a list? Like, hey, mm-hmm. this is what we're doing on this holiday. These are things I want to watch, or got this lit. Uh, where what, is, what I mean, happens when the clock strikes? No more pod recordings. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's like a list, a very loose list of like shit I would love to do, and then it's always like, not a hug. <laughs> no. Did you accomplish any of them? No, none of them. What were some of them on the list? Um, what hit me? Read, what did, what did read we hold a book co- that I've been trying to read for like four <laughs> years? A, like a specific book, not yes, just a no, book. One like you could have lowered the bar to just <laughs> a different book. short story. No, uh, literally been trying not four years. Like I think it's been two years since I've owned a physical copy of uh, Memory Called Empire, and I started reading it. I've gotten like a quarter of the way through, and uh, I could. Does just never that find qualify time. that you can keep reading it from the spot that you stopped if you have been doing it for two years? I think I can. I think Ren, I, I can. feel like you read more than probably <laughs> any of us. I just get that yeah. impression. Is Kato allowed? Do, do the rules state when Kato is forced to start the book <laughs> start, over? I think that's, I never. I never start a book over. I will. Wow. I can. Do you take a, a several year break? I could. I've that. I've taken <laughs> several months. But you don't. I've I taken could. several month breaks before. I, and then I, I, th- I think. I think several months is totally like mm-hmm. you started something in the summer, got busy. Months. Years. Oh, to be clear, to different be clear. periods of time. This wasn't yes. like a a single burst of reading that has gotten me through a quarter of the book. I have read <laughs> over the past two years a quarter of that book slowly, <laughs> like, like chapters. Or are you starting mid chapter and like ah, that's it for tonight? Yeah, if it depends on. I'll, uh, sometimes there's like those mid chapter breaks where you're like, this could have mm-hmm. been a chapter, but they didn't want to break it up into a new number. <laughs> I get to that and I'm like, okay, I can put a bookmark here and go to sleep. <laughs> So and then it'll be like next time I'll read 
three pages. Uh, I just my my family. So I uh, grew up in a household of six. You know, I have four. You also traveled, I have right? Four siblings. Yeah, I go down to Florida every year to visit them. I have three siblings and two two parents. So the six of us are very rarely in the house anymore because my the youngest of us. I'm the oldest. The youngest of us just graduated uh, college. So like everyone's out of the house at this point. So as the t- as time has gone on, it's been rarer and rarer to have all six of us there. Which means my mom is like. We're doing everything together, everything all the time. I'm going to the grocery store to pick up a watermelon. Everybody, get in the van. We're all going now. <laughs> it's just like Jesus. I I get nothing done because I'm just literally being dragged around to Mom, do errands. I'm for trying no to reason. read this book. I would like to sit and just not think about anything for like 24 hours. But it's very go 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 in Florida, which is why I only stay for a week, mm-hmm. and then I came back to New York and. Also, continued to not do anything because this year I had friends visiting from a friend from LA decided to spend New Year's in New York instead. So I was like, well, time to be an entertainer for another week. Mm-hmm. So nothing of like, I was going to play, I was going to play so many games. I was going to read. I was going to start my game of the year uh, twine a lot earlier than I normally do. <sighs> Brandon, what was what did you have a holiday strategy? What I, were, did, I don't have a plan. I don't have okay. a strat. So what I kind of just I follow you, my heart. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Where I, did your I, heart take you? My heart took me. So I read the on the. So I had a two fourteen-hour train rides, or a fourteen-hour train ride, and then a twelve-hour train. Ride. Oh, so you were traveling uh, back to OH. I would assume. Yeah. Oh. And I, I think that, you know, uh, Ohio is kind of similar to Florida and my, my experience in Ohio is similar to Florida. And that it was either go, go, go or absolutely nothing. Uh, and the cool oh, thing about wow. Ohio is that it's kind of like um, it kind of vacuums uh, all of the joy and life force out of you <laughs> the moment you cross the state lines. Um, uh, I, I have you thought about piling everyone into a van and buying watermelons though yeah, i'm starting to yeah. think maybe this is just should not be a cotto family tradition but it's just something we should all adopt as oh, a that new sounds, that sounds lovely yeah. uh not everyone <laughs> pick out a different watermelon and bring it home what are we going to do with these watermelons we're not sure but we'll look on youtube well, you've heard of uh, jack-o-lanterns so here's water juices out of the watermelon <laughs> while you're cutting it no no I'm you, sucking you scoop it, up. it out you scoop it out <laughs> Make delicious watermelon mm. agua fresca. <laughs> Everyone Ooh. loves dried watermelon rinds. Yeah. That's, that's one thing I know is when those get real hot and spicy, everyone's Ew. having a good time from the from the candle flame. Um, I read all of Jeff Vandermeer's novel Born uh, on the way up, hmm. uh, which was uh, really good. Um, okay, here's, okay, if you don't have a holiday strategy, yes. you sound like someone that might have a train strategy. Yes. Have you like thought through... This is what I want to do, like in these fourteen hours. Generally, I, I I will go in with something. So I did uh, on the way up. I started Chained Echoes. Um, I read all of Born because I got burnt out on Chained Echoes uh, and listened to uh, the Shrieking Shack, uh, which is uh, a podcast. The um, Fuck Harry Potter, Harry yes, Potter podcast. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, 
And so, yeah, that was. Do you want to? Do you want to feel uh, morally correct? Like, you want to listen to people talk about Harry Potter, but you also want them to rip it apart at the same time. <laughs> like, yeah. how do I accomplish both yeah. these tasks? Shout I've heard out. nothing but good things about about that. Shout out ZC. Um, and so, on the way back, though, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get stuff done because mm-hmm. I. Uh, received code for something we're going to be talking about a little bit later in the pod. And that was a lot of my, a lot of my holiday was just devouring that like a, like a, like a yummy meal. And then starting uh, my review on the train ride back and then finishing up like a different draft. Um, So yes, that was my, that was my holiday. Uh, Yeah, I was given, uh, there was a brief period where I thought to myself, so I had one, uh, I I had two weeks off. I had extra vacation. I had to burn because I'm bad about, using all of it and i 2023 we say it constantly on the show <laughs> fuck capitalism go home but i stay at home and i don't fuck capitalism enough i that's hmm uh, but i need no, to take no, more no. days off did you is, wait hmm. i think i learned did, did any of your days roll over this year do you have yes but over that's there? yeah so that but that's the problem is i i don't take enough to to like the, <laughs> apparently the ones that roll over I don't know if this you is just this March, year? right? March. Yeah. Mar- I didn't know March was the cutoff. I definitely yeah. lost vacation days last like mm-hmm. last time because I didn't know that. I'm losing them anyway. Like, but I need to get better <laughs> about this. Like, I should take my whole like kids spring break off. Like, I just I should just do that even if my like so anyway, that's all to say for uh I had a week where uh my kids were still in daycare and my wife was like, What are you gonna do? I was like, What do you mean what am I gonna do? He's like, You know, like do something special with the kids because you got time off? And I was like, No. <laughs> No, I'm not. I'm gonna stop and stay at home, and Daddy is gonna watch movies. I turned my 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 oldest was stuck in school and like school school, and that's uh, okay. not the kind of thing where you just want to take them out willy nilly unless it's like really important, right? Um, and then by the second week rolled around a lot of holiday stuff, but uh, no, I did not like take my kids to the aquarium. That's that I was handed a to do li- to do list by my wife of various things like please go to the Honda dealership and spend three hours and two hundred dollars getting a new key fob. So Oof. I did that Oof. Um, because once the, the computerization of computers or uh, of cars or of everything really is cool or interesting until everything becomes proprietary and you just can't go to the Home Depot and get yeah. a $2 key because they claim, well, it's a $120 part and it's 80 Boy. bucks to program. And I'm not Damn trying to bucks. downplay the labor of the guy at the Honda dealership who put that together, but he just handed me a key with a tiny computer in it. Is that I paid two hundred twenty dollars for the how opportunity. How does work? Can the can the flipper zero copy a key fob? This is oh, my I'm gonna question. Feel... <laughs> oh, I've looked at I've looked at the flipper zero. That thing is neat. Yeah, it's like it basically, is. I want one of those. You can basically download RFID tags, right? Right. Yes. This um, is what I'm saying. Is it an RFID? Like, can you can you flipper zero your key fob and never pay sh- them again? <laughs> I don't, I didn't Google this enough and you're going to make me feel awfully distressed if I just took it at Honda's word that I had to come in and do it through them. Um, Never take uh, it at a company's word that you have to do it through them. They're always lying. Well, please write in if there are ways to, in the future when I lose another one of these keys, can I not pay $200 uh, for it? Otherwise, the, I don't know, maybe this is slightly deranged. I'm not sure, but um I, I, try, I do try to like to like run away from video games to a fair degree during uh, my my time off. That said, I still managed to. Well, we'll get to it. But I, there's a handful of games that I ended up finishing because uh, I wanted to get, to get through over that time because I personally wanted to finish them. Um, 
But I, one of the few film ca- uh, film podcasts I listen to is called the Filmcast. Used to be called the Slash Filmcast, um, and they divide their uh, discussions into uh, a like non spoiler, like kind of like broad impressions, and then a spoiler section where they can just like talk fully about the the story and the plot beats and the themes and stuff like that. And the movies that I uh, like really want to see, I basically listen until the spoiler break, pause it, and I was like, cool, I'll listen to the rest of that when I watch the movie. And I wait till the this period to just like I'm at a buffet, like ta- Banshees of Inishirin. I think that's how you pronounce it. Like a bunch of those. So I did. I, that's mostly what I did during my break was like also watch Black Adam and be like, this movie sucked. Um, <laughs> that said, it was funny when he Kool-Aid man his way through the door like 25 times. That bit was always funny, even though I don't think they meant it to be funny. So I spent a lot of time watching uh, uh, movies and I do. Really recommend nice. watching uh, Banshees of Inishirin. It is, it oh, is yeah. you will, you want to feel for a donkey and also Colin Farrell's eyebrows. Like, please, please watch that film. It's, it's extremely good. Um, <laughs> two small, two small pieces of game news. One, just kind of want to shout out that uh, CES is happening this week. Part of that was Sony announcing that uh, they have a new uh, kind of accessibility controller called Project Leonardo, which is not necessarily a response, but it's sort of an extension of. Mm-hmm. Really, a lot of the hard work that like Microsoft has been doing with their own accessibility controller, I, I have no sense at the, the at this moment because I don't think anyone's used it. How it compares to Microsoft's work on their own uh, accessibility peripherals, but broadly, I think it is cool that a uh, a ma- another major hardware platform is saying, "Hey, we should spend real work and resources making it easier to play our games." While simultaneously raising the base price of our platform arbitrarily in select markets so that Ooh. it's actually harder to buy it. Oh, no. Not a contradictory message there uh, whatsoever. Who who could say? Um, there also, and then, yeah. I forget if this, I'm trying, um, maybe I shouldn't say. I'm trying to remember. I th- I think I saw something about how there are PlayStation, like there are controllers that people use for PlayStation 4 that were mm-hmm. accessibility like focused that could be supported by the PS5 but haven't been yet. Mm. So I'm curious. I mean, stuff like that wouldn't shock me. Like yeah, it is, exactly. it's very normal for things to break compatibility between uh, hardware changes. Yeah, they're still waiting for like a lot of fighting game controllers to become compatible with the PS5. So like, I would be completely unsurprised if if Sony just completely busted those. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, elsewhere, um, continuing the sort of expansion of unionization, discussions about unionization. Um, we've got a piece up on the site. Uh, Fallout and Doom QA testers just formed the biggest union in the U.S. games industry. Uh, to quote from the piece from uh, Emmanuel Myberg and Jules Roscoe. Uh, quality assurance workers at Microsoft ZeniMax Studios, the people who make the Elder Scrolls, Fallout, and Doom games, just voted to form a union, making it the first game studio to unionize under Microsoft and the largest group of union-represented quality assurance testers at any U.S. game studio. Zenimec Workers United and the Communication Workers of America didn't share the exact vote count, but said that the 300 QA testers overwhelmingly voted uh, in favor of their union. Workers decided to join the union by signing union authorization cards or voting uh, via an online portal. As the company had previously promised, Microsoft has recognized the union. Um, And there's some previous reporting, if you clicked at that piece, uh, in which... um, they spoke to some of the the workers who were part of the organizing effort, but uh, I this is another encouraging development uh, for for folks 
getting together in their workplaces, unionizing, organizing. It is all the shit we love to see. Um, and I, I, I don't know. There's a whole lot to say uh, about this, uh, but uh, it's just really encouraging. It's very exciting. Like I, I, I hope this continues uh, to spread. I, I believe actually, I'm, I don't have this linked in here, but I believe there's also some other unionization efforts mm. uh, happening that are going to involve non-QA people as well. Nice. Um, and so uh, all of that is hopefully going to lead to yet another year of people feeling emboldened to take that kind of collective action that we are always rooting for uh, here at Waypoint. Um, Hell yeah. I know there were a lot of holiday games that I played that other people played, but uh, the game that you played the most uh, that we'll talk really in depth about next week, um, but at least wanted mm. to get sort of your, yeah. Mm, Wait, would it, it be the, wouldn't now? it be the two weeks from now? Yeah. And two uh, weeks the from review now. embargo is the, is the 20th of the 20th. January. Um, yeah. But the uh, preview impressions embargo is up for fire emblem engage. Um, the new fire emblem game coming to the switch from uh, an, is it still intelligent systems yes, or this is still intelligent uh, systems. Uh, a Nintendo um, Ren, you said you played a lot of this on uh, your train ride. And you have a lot to say in your review when that uh, embargo was up, but what do you make of the new fire Emblem so far? I, I, well, what I make of it is that I put over 35 hours into it uh, okay. over the uh, course of the holiday break, like, like well over. Um, and I did that for a reason uh, and the reason is that hopefully it is not because you were assigned the review. No, uh, that is I mean, not you would have it. done that anyway, but <laughs> when you would say, <laughs> no, 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 no. Also it was over an extended enough period of time where it was like mostly fun. Yeah. Shout out to Nintendo for the, the code did come in extremely early, which is always nice for, for long games, but, uh, it's sorry. Continue. So, um, it is, if you liked three houses for its narrative, for the ways in which it asks questions of its characters, it, it builds relationships that, you know, mean things and, and question systems and, like, have characters that grow and change over the course of the video game. You should not play Final Fantasy VIII. Oh, no, that's an enormous but. Because that was going to be my first question, is, like, what is where does this game fit in the sort of design continuum of the personification of Fire Emblem that kind of started around... The Awakening era. Yes. So that's the thing is that it, it removes romances. There are no romances in this game. Uh, the S rank of S rank of supports, uh, which has been in uh, pretty much every Fire Emblem game since uh, Awakening, has been removed. Uh, there there's, are there's no S. You no S. It cap at A. There is a cap mm. at A. The game goes C V A, and you're like, where's <laughs> S? It feels like there's a there's a space for that there, and there's the, it doesn't get filled. Um, it, and it here's the thing that feels tonally correct because Fire Emblem Engage is a Saturday morning cartoon. Mm. The game's mm. introductory, like, opening song is the most, like, Pokemon theme opening <laughs> I have ever heard. It is, it is honestly incredible. Um, it is like roaring violins with a dude, um, like fast singing uh, to like a specific like that, but singing out words, which is a okay. very specific yes. vibe. It like reminds me of like tooth or like mid two thousands uh, shows designed to sell toys to children: mm-hmm. a Bakugan, uh, a Digimon, <laughs> a Pokemon, a Beyblade, um, and 
that tone kind of carries into the actual writing of the game in which no characters actually have like real opinions or motivations or beliefs. Uh, They're all kind of just cardboard cutouts of themed like groups from the country they're from. So there's like Hmm. four main countries, uh, Elio, sorry, uh, Firene, Brodia, Solm, and Illusia. Um, And each of them have like a thing about them. Firene people love peace. Brodia people love combat and and the honor that comes from combat. But also, they're really bro-y and fun when they're not fighting. They're like cool buddies who are super nice. Uh, like bros, but not misogynistic. Exactly. Like a nice bro. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Solm is, it has a matriarch and their people are free, uh, which in this case means like, it's the very much is like, that, is that free and you put free in quotes <laughs> because it's a very particular vision of freedom where it's like freedom okay. is, uh, freedom is prince. service of the state, <laughs> right? Freedom is a prince being able to do whatever the fuck he wants, right? Like, like, oh, we don't do noble customs. We're all about freedom here. And it's like, all right, bud, calm down. Um, And then, like, each, you know, you have the royals and they're, like, you know, your main, you know, crew. And they each have two retainers. And the retainers always have a theme that, like, the cluster of characters is built around. So the Prince of Firene and his retainers, they all love working out. They are are part of the peace country, but all of them love getting buff. Um, (laughs) But one of them's a girl, and she likes being pretty and getting buff. And okay. then there's a dude who likes reading books and getting buff. <laughs> and if you, if you apply this basic theory of character of like a character writing, now apply it across an entire video game with like 20 plus um like characters, right? And so this is not a game that is asking interesting questions. There are not like political machinations happening. It is like action figures like bouncing off of each other. Uh, are you picking the factions this time? No. Or okay, so you're, it's more of just a straightforward. Yes, this is a okay. deeply linear game. There are no choices uh, that I've experienced so far. I have not had to make a single choice uh, in the video game. Um, and so all of this is is the but for me saying that this is some of the most fun I've had in a tactics game in a while. Mm. Okay, so that that was that was gonna be my question because I remember playing Three Houses and enjoy it was a long game that you know I mean, all these are longish games yeah. but yeah. that game felt longer because uh i at certain point just wished it was broadly just fully like this yeah. world's cool the characters are cool what if this was just like a more of a visual novel like a very ambitious uh, expensive visual novel because the tactic stuff on like the normal difficulty setting was producing zero friction whatsoever right by and the end then, of that game it's just like do i have the higher level character Yes, done. Yeah, right. And I could have just automated it, and it would that would have been more engaging than actually moving the pieces forward. And so it's interesting in this game that that would not have been my assumption. My assumption would have been lean, he- like lean heavy in the direction of the like I don't know, like fandom, like sort of like sort of aspect of Fire Emblem that has become more popular over the last ten years or so. And it's interesting that this one pulls that back. And actually emphasizes. So I guess if that's true, why is it the tactics are more interesting this time? 
so the the other interesting thing about the fact that it's it's you know you would expect it to be deeply invested in the in the characters and everything that is also the premise of the game. So the whole thing with Fire Emblem Engage is that the world it takes place in exists at the intersection of all of the other Fire Emblem worlds, and so there are these rings that contain. Uh, the like ghostly versions of the protagonists from previous games. Uh, the first one you get is Marth. Uh, oh. You get Marth's emblem ring, and you can summon Marth to like. But it's not you Val. Them. It's like it. It is and it isn't. It's like a ghostly version of them. They remember Does the ghost all of Marth past. bring back its experiences. Yes, and. Well, no. Like back to original Marth? Does no. Marth know what Ghost Marth has been no. up to? He has no oh. idea. And and here's the thing, Ghost Marth <laughs> the has... The ethics of this oh of these rings are questionable at best. Ghost Marth has one of the funniest introductions I've ever heard. So, you get the ring for the first time. You, you put on the emblem ring. Your character says the phrase that awakens uh, emblem Marth. And he, and he rises from his slumber from the ring. And Emblem Marth does like a cool transformation sequence. It is it is genuinely like Power Rangers esque uh, okay. as he as he does a transformation sequence, and then looks dead at the camera and goes, "I am Marth, beat Emblem Marth to be clear." <laughs> <laughs> so wait, so they have separate agency. They're aware that they're yeah. adults. Yes, and 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 the delivery of "I am Marth, Emblem Marth." To be clear, completely changed my perspective on the game. Because to that point, I was like, this is awful. This The writing is so bad. All of this sucks <sighs> shit. What are they doing? And then I heard, I am Marth. Emblem Marth. To be clear. And I was like, this is the, this is, I love this. This is a, this is a game for, this is a child's story. And you know what? It's, it's having fun with that. And so... It is deeply invested and in, in like obsessive about the history of the series. You're summoning all of these older characters from previous games to aid you in battle. And in doing so, it is also like the simplest narrative that I think the series has ever had. Uh, it, it feels like a real like pastiche of things uh, and is constantly like referencing stuff. And like it is an echo of everything that came before it. And I mean that in both positive and negative lights. It but. Mm-hmm. Please, Kato. I was just gonna ask the how do you get how do you get people? Is this like a linear path? Mm-hmm. They have this thing called a pokeball, and you go out into the field. Well. Um, it's like there's a Marth, and <laughs> <laughs> Marth, get in this cool ring. Hey, <laughs> hey, yeah. hey, Marth's off with his family, and you're hiding behind a bush with this ring that just sucks his soul out. <laughs> Got him. Um, <laughs> So uh, there are there are twelve emblem rings that actually summon a character that have a a person in them, uh-huh. and then the game also has a weird gotcha mechanic where uh, that is not you can't put money into it. Let me just note that real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's no money you were putting into this. Um, where you get rings that don't give you the abilities that emblem rings give you because what emblem rings give you is when you equip a character with an emblem ring they get the skills of the character whose ring it is. Okay. Which is really cool. But just the skills and not the, like, stats and stuff? They do get a stat boost. They get a stat boost and the character skills. But those skills are, like, meaningful. For example, uh, Sigurd, uh, one of the previous, uh, like, key characters uh, from one of the games. When you equip Sigurd's Bond Ring and activate it, 
the character gets a plus five movement range, uh, which means that they can travel basically half a map uh, pretty casually. They also gain the ability Momentum, which increases their damage of the first attack they do by one for every space they moved. Ooh, nice. And so suddenly you can get a 10 damage boost for free by just traveling across all of these spaces right. if you have this ring equipped. Which and like this is 10 is big in Fire Emblem numbers. Like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and this is in addition to your character's uh, signature skill. So like all Fire Emblem games, every character has a signature skill and then they have a class skill. Uh, and so signature skills, class skills, and then your emblem skills of the equipped ring you have. And then there's two free slots which you can take from rings that you have used previously. Mm. And so you can basically mix and match all of these abilities to create really specific builds for your characters. Um, I have one character in, you know, who has, I think all four of her slots are filled up and is just a nightmare. Just a, just a complete and total nightmare uh, on the battlefield who gets like massive crit bonuses uh, and is also really, really tanky. Um, and so you have all of these like stacking skill bonuses. And, and so the build crafting aspect of the game is really cool and like way more in depth than anything else in the series. It seems more dynamic too, where you're, you have a lot of opportunity to really alter uh, like some real specifics of what the character is going to do on the field. Yes. The other thing that using these rings does is you can engage them. And when you engage them, you get a little transformation sequence and the person, you know, looks different because uh, they fuse with their emblem. Uh, oh. And so when they do this, they don't just get access to a really powerful like super move, uh, which they do. They get access to a super move. They also get access to the emblem signature weapons, which means that if you have an axe character and you give them the ring of Marth, who uses a sword, when you engage, that axe character can temporarily become a sword character. Oh, so that you don't have the traditional sort of rock, paper, scissors that defines a lot of, or at least you can kind of subvert the rock, paper, scissors, where like a lot of times it's like, hey, you're like axe and sword, like, you know, you're playing a lot of strengths and weaknesses in Fire Emblem games. And once in a while, they're like, then you can have instances where, well, this guy is weak as shit against this. Hopefully I can survive the fight. And this sounds like you actually have kind of an ace up your sleeve, or at least it gives you more options with where to place the unit um, that won't necessarily completely screw them. Exactly. And the other thing is about that, about the triangle. I think that before this game, the weapon triangle was bad uh, <laughs> because the only thing that the weapon triangle did in previous games was increase or decrease your likelihood of hitting the enemy. And so... If you are, and sometimes it would adjust damage slightly. Uh, and so if you use a sword against an axe, you're going to be slightly more likely to hit someone. Engage adds the break mechanic, where if you hit someone with an advantageous weapon, they lose their ability to counterattack. Oh, shit. Uh-huh. Hmm. Yeah, uh, that's a pretty big change in terms of, like, the risk-reward of attacking an enemy, which yeah. is, like, <laughs> a lot of what you're doing on a, on a Fire Emblem map. Yes. Uh, and so uh, standard Fire Emblem attack is you attack, enemy counterattacks, you attack again. Uh, if you use a break ability, if, uh, if you break them, you just get to attack twice. And the next attack against them also avoids being countered. Uh, so hmm. they can't counter the next attack either. And so if you are, say, for example, you're fighting a character who's like wielding like a, a heavy armor character, right? And your sword character, you have someone with uh, armor slayer, a uh, sword that breaks armor, right? 
and if they attack them directly, they will be killed in the counterattack before they get the chance to actually beat the enemy, right? And so, instead, you send in a weaker character who can break the armor user first, and then the sword character with armor slayer can go in and finish them off without risking taking damage. Um, nice. Which is really cool because it opens up the solutions to problems, right? right? In a lot of Fire Emblem games, it is really, really rock, paper, scissory, right? The only way you're going to take out a flying unit is a bow, or the only way you should take out a flying unit is a bow. The only way you should take out an armor user is with magic or an armor-breaking weapon, right? And this game goes, you can do a lot more, right? It feels like... However... Mm-hmm. Yeah, please. I was just going to say, it feels like you're going to be engaging characters um like like before it's like you would line up the bow user against the flyer and they would only focus that and like not do anything else but this feels like you can have someone set them up in order for anyone else to kind of follow through on it yes exactly and like it's super sick because they also uh in this game priests your your healers also used fist weapons uh and (laughs) fist weapons break naturally bows knives and tomes, which means that your priests are just as useful on the front lines as they are as healers, because they are the people who can open up magic and knife users to actually being taken out safely, uh, because magic and knives are really good in this game, mm-hmm. and so you have to have priests who are willing to go in there and break them to set up their allies. Uh, And so you have to be constantly making the decision of, am I going to spend my priest's limited time healing an ally who is really low on health or using them to break the enemy uh, to set up, you know, to continue this like forward advance? And so you're having decisions like that come up constantly uh, and they're really engaging. Uh, They also add like new weapon types, uh, the great weapons, which are really slow, but they deal a lot of damage. Uh, And they also knock characters back on the map, uh, which means that you can adjust the enemy's position, which is important because this game uses a lot of terrain effects. Uh, And so moving your enemies around is kind of essential in a lot of maps. Uh, And so what you do is you break an enemy and then you send in a great weapon user to knock them around so you can safely use those weapons without being killed. Because great weapons take so long to swing that the enemy gets to counterattack you twice before you get to attack once most of the time. And that is enough to kill people Mm -hmm. uh, in this game because also, the enemies hit hard. Like, that's the thing. So that was going to be my question, is you've now played enough that in Three Houses, the game was broken for me um, and was was completely built on how much am I enjoying the characters at yep. this point, like in the story. And I, I liked it quite a bit, but the it was almost a chore to go back to the to the tactics layer. At this point, like how is the, how does that arc, that difficulty arc feel for you in terms of how much the game is pushing back? I am playing I started the game on hard difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um I am playing casual because I've I've come to a conclusion about myself. There is no point for me playing classic Fire Emblem difficulty because all it led to me doing was restarting the second I lose any character. Yep, same, and like, same here. That's not fun for me. Like, I, I yep. realized that it was not doing anything for me because I was if I'm going to restart anyways and I'm, I, I want to see these character stories that much, at, at that point, it's, it's not like... When characters die in Fire Emblem, the world doesn't react to that. 
you just miss out on their narrative. And I think that sucks. Like, if, if you're going to let those characters die, I want the world to push back on me. I want other characters to be like, oh, fuck, that guy died. And this is, like, changing me as a person. And this is really Especially on your first playthrough, where, like, you're trying to see all that, all that yeah. through. Uh, and so I've been playing hard and casual. I have a pretty well-leveled party. Like, I'm, like, technically over-leveled for a lot of the story content. I am getting down to one, one or two troops left alive mm. by the end of fights because the game is really, really clever about um, the groups of enemies it, put, it pits you against. It is it is doing a really good job of being like, okay, we're going to make this squad that is going to be really difficult to fight through unless you fight them correctly and fight them really smart. Um and because the enemy can break you as much as you can break them, it re- the weapon triangle really matters. In previous games, if you let someone get out of position and they were high enough leveled, you could be fine. You can send your sword user into a group of spear guys if your sword user's high enough level. They'll just, they'll just chew through the spear users like they're nothing uh, and counterattack them to death. If you do that in this game, you will be killed because you'll just get broken over and over again and overrun. So the enemies hit hard, they have access to the break system, and they are cleverly placed. Which is why the game's actually requiring you to use all of these abilities and use them well. And so, like, you are given powerful tools because you need them. And that is really fun for me, because it is, there's so many solutions to these problems, and I'm finding my own solutions to these problems, but the solutions are so rarely just be a higher level. Uh, Even my highest leveled characters who are, you know, seven levels over what the story content is can still get killed if I put them in a bad position. And like that to me means that the game has done the right thing in terms of its balancing. I think that the break system is the addition that the series needed um, to actually feel meaningful. And, like, for folks who really like the original Fire Emblem tactics, uh, like, style of tactics, um, I don't know if this is... I don't know if they will get what they want out of this because it is such a different thing uh, at times. The break system makes it feel like such a different thing. And, you know, the Power Rangers analogy also holds true in that, like, your characters can be extremely powerful. Uh, and there is this there is this element of... The game wants you to lean into the joy of making a really cool guy do a bunch of shit uh, and take out a bunch of enemies, uh, while also making sure you know that if you don't play carefully, it will take that away from you in a heartbeat. Uh, And I think it's found actually a a really good balance between those things. Interesting. Well, I'm glad that is the the response that uh, you've had so far to Fire Emblem Engage. That sounds... I I have to admit I was deeply worried about what this game was after uh, Three Houses, despite liking quite a bit about that from a story and world perspective. But even if it loses some of that, the the combat layer stuff sounds way more fascinating than I was expecting. So rather than being, despite someone who's like played all the games since Awakening and kind of turned on to the franchise since then, the, you know, part of my issue was the kind of like stagnant difficulty and mechanics of the last one and this sounds like this addresses it in in a big way. I am really excited for whatever the next Fire Emblem game is because mm. it feels like a transition transition one where maybe you don't necessarily even blame them for the story being like, hey, we've got a really good story for the next Fire Emblem. 
pocket that. Let's we're doing a mechanical one. <laughs> we do another one of these every two years. Uh, yeah. Kind of like, you know, what, what Pokemon is going through. Yeah. Um, it's like Nintendo produces them at such a rate that if this is the kind of off year where they're trying a couple of things and then that all gets deployed in a more refined way and inevitably the, the one that they're working on now because this game was finished a while ago. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. Well, the thing, the, the last thing I'll say is that like, and why I'm so excited is that this game makes it very clear that they have learned how to meld their tone and narrative to their mechanics. And they've learned how to do it really well. The Saturday morning cartoon vibe is is so well, like, conveyed through both things that, like, I want to see what it looks like when they're asking real questions. What do the mechanics look like when they are asking real questions? And it's reflected in the fights because they have managed to do that with goofiness. And I want to see it with a three houses level um, story. And I think it'll be really, really cool to see the specific mechanics they are able to cook up if that is what they end up doing. Uh, One game that it sounds like the two of you touched on over the holidays, a game that I have heard hooting and hollering from one Austin Walker and a lot of other folks, Jason Schreier, uh, is uh, Chained Echoes, a Chrono Trigger-inspired JRPG that I believe was like largely made by one person in Germany. Um, uh, And... I'm I'm curious what the two of you have made of that game so far. I'm uh still pretty early, but what is pretty early? Because I've heard that game's like 45 hours. Very, very early, very super early. Okay, I played right, like two okay. hours. <laughs> um but like uh the what's interesting is that it, it jumps straight into the like I see where the um what's it called? Uh Chrono Trigger comparisons come in. Um, but I'm curious about where it uh, goes from there. It has a very interesting kind of base mechanic in all of the fights that feels very, you know, they introduce early on that this world, this fantasy world has mechs, and there's basically a, a heat management uh, mechanic for your entire party, where there's a bar that when you do offensive, like, actions, it fills up and it gets into a, like, like um uh it's like abt but bad <laughs> well, like, like as you do things it fills up and it gets to a certain point where it's like there's like a little zone that's green and if you go over okay. that if you keep doing things that make it go up it goes it gets bad you uh you hit the red zone and you're basically uh taking extra damage so there are certain moves um that will take it down and that and what kinds of moves take it down change every like three or four turns so there's a management of like you want to stay in the in the hot zone in the good zone and not over overextend yourself, but also, um, and it feels very much attuned like the in my brain it's like it's like heat management on a mech right. The more things you do, mm. uh, the more it'll go up, but then you have to you have to vent at some point. <laughs> um, but it, that works just for your whole party, even if you don't have a like I haven't actually played with um, a mech because you get blown out of it pretty early on. um and and the cool thing about this system is that like it really encourages you to use abilities you would normally not use right so like blocking like hey i can block on a jrpg i'm never gonna do it why would i block that's for cowards blocking reduces it and also like there the cool thing it has variable difficulty and so you can change how tight the window is and so when i was kind of kind of like a changing like the parry system yes uh, sort of thing yes you can change how large the uh overdrive window is yeah the space that you're good in is (laughs) and And that's the game's equivalent of like an easy medium 
like hard sort of like setting is, is broadly that, or is that something like a subsystem that you can mess it's with? It's a couple. Uh, there's actually uh. a couple difficult difficulty sliders. One of them is enemy stats. One of them is the overdrive uh, range. And I think there's a third one that I can't remember, but there's three. Uh, and so when I turned those up again, I'm barely scraping through fights in the same way that I was in fire emblem engage at its best. I am barely scraping through some fights in chained echoes because it's like, you really have to be on the fucking ball in terms of keeping your heat management. Because when you go into that overheating zone, not only do you take extra damage, but all of your abilities cost double the mana. And oh, that will, interesting. that eats up your resources so fast. Mm -hmm. And so there was a ton of times where I was in a fight and I was like, go, go, go. And then I would realize, oh, fuck, I'm getting near the end of overdrive. And my next character doesn't have the kind of ability that I need to reduce the bar. And so I have to find some way to reduce this bar. So I guess I'll block or something, but even blocking, I'm, I'm pushing into the overheat range. And oh, so, so even block blocking is not neutral. It is that it is still considered a, yeah. a so how does the, the kind of, you'd mentioned like the moves change. What is determining what is a, like a cooldown? sort of move but so like basically there's like a little symbol next to the overdrive bar and mm -hmm. different types of skills have different symbols associated with them uh, um I, I think the symbols mean like they, they kind of attach are attached to certain different types of either magic or other sorts of like special abilities but basically like sometimes it'll be associated with an offensive move sometimes like a magic fireball will still pull you down even though normally it would push you up on that bar um what's also really interesting is structurally at least as far as i've played which again only a couple hours but so far there aren't there is no in jrpgs you get potions you get mana like ether pots or whatever you get resources to use that you use over time past many fights every time you fight in this game everything resets like each next fight, I hate those systems. I like, but I, you still I hate have, they, like, gotta have ninety nine high potions. <laughs> you still have potions, but they're only for use within a fight. Like, right, you get hurt. So just, it's like kind of like upgrading your flask in a Souls game. Right. Like, hey, you've got <laughs> six here. You can use. Basically, it's like you're only using them during the fight, and then once the fight is over, like the next time you have a fight, everything's filled back up. So it's not like this overtime sort of resource management. It's a per fight resource management situation where like. You could use them all on one fight and then not have any for the next, and so it's over time in that way. But it's not like you um, you have to heal after every single battle or whatever, right? Um, the other cool thing about that is that there are some items that act as whatever uh, ability type will lower the gauge, uh, and so you can have some like oh, I have an item that is a buff uh, replacement. And so if, I have, if I'm on a character who doesn't have any buff abilities that would lower the uh, heat gauge, you can instead use that item as a last resort to be like, I need to get this gauge down now. Uh, and I've only found like a, a couple of those items. And so it's really cool that like, we, it will give you ways for characters who are not prepared to use those abilities, uh, a way to significantly decrease the gauge, but it is explicitly spending a resource uh, that is uh, so far not super common. Um, the other really cool thing is that the game leans into um, having multiple party members uh, and switching them out mid-fight. 
uh, one of the things that reduces your heat is swapping to party members. Awesome. Uh, so my favorite thing about like Final Fantasy X was like having everyone lined up and just like rotating through them in fights. Yes, exactly. So it is, it is is that exact thing of like, okay, tag you in. And so when you tag someone in, it reduces the gauge slightly. Ah. And so not only is the game trying to get you to do this because it's like, oh, I need to get the character with that ability tagged in, but also tagging in is always beneficial to managing your gauge even if you're not tagging in a character who has the right you know Mm -hmm. ability types um and that's really sick uh it also leads to like trying to figure out who you're putting in what row uh because there are four rows and you can only tag in the other person in your row which means that it's like okay i have two healers do i put them in the same row and assume that i will always need a healer on the field or do I put them in different rows and try and like, you know, what what role is going to be fighting in this particular position? And is this position going to be able to be useful um, if the enemy is like target if if the bar is targeting a specific ability? And like that shit's really cool. That is that is that is that decision making is really engaging. Very cool. Well, I've heard a lot of really good things about it. I'm curious as a huge Chrono Trigger fan myself, I've been if I didn't have a bunch of other games, I'm also trying to finish up from <laughs> last year. Chain, Chained Echoes, uh, Patrick Klupik's 2024, uh, game of 2023. 2023. <laughs> yeah, game like <laughs> lining it up as, as one of those, uh, already. But I've heard incredibly good things uh, about it. I've heard maybe that the localization is a little stiff, um, but that the, the world and story, um, are pretty good and the combat system is excellent. So that is. That is cool to hear. Um, you get to be in a team or, with a dolphin man and a lion man, like within all right. thirty minutes, like God Spring. intended. Yeah, exactly. It's so good. Um, <laughs> that is very Chrono Trigger, actually. Yeah. It's like ah, instead ah, yes, of a frog, frog, it's a dolphin. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Over the break, just pretty quickly, um, uh, I did finish uh, Signalis, uh, a game that I, I thought was quite good. Uh, did not care for the last area that much. I feel like maybe there's a world where like, hey, Rob, I don't I hope you feel better. But if Rob doesn't feel better, there's like a chance that maybe Monday's half of Monday's podcast will just do a spoiler cast on <laughs> Signalis. And uh, I've kept that in my back pocket as something we, we could do. There's a lot to unpack in that game. I yeah. think it it is like a remarkable debut effort from that studio. Like is just in, in, incredible to to look at and what it is swinging for on the fences uh, narratively, even if in some ways I don't think it connects, like the ambition is just like ridiculous and the confidence is ridiculous. Um, and the inventory stuff, I mean, like there's too many weapons at the end. I didn't need them all. Like there's like, there's stuff like that that just feels like could have been a little bit better, but I almost feel bad knocking the game for it because the things that it's trying to do are so strong that it's like, okay, yeah, I didn't need a machine gun at the end. Like, that's fine. Um, <laughs> See, that's interesting because I totally did. I was down to my last bullets in that final boss fight. What ending did you get? Like, it, the well, endings okay, are I, I don't. Um, <laughs> I almost feel like I should, we should hold that for the spoiler okay. cast. I have okay. issues with the way the game delivers, like produces its ending for you. That is, I, I guess I will say related to how you play. Yes. And I was mm-hmm. a little frustrated at that. Um, oh, because of the specific way in which I play these types oh. of games. Um, <laughs> I think so. I can guess your ending based on that. <laughs> yeah, you, you can. Yes, it's like, cool, yes. cool. Like you got a worse ending cause you were careful. Like that kind of sucks. Um, so, uh, the, the silent hill two problem. <laughs> yeah. I don't like it. I think it's a bad way to 
I think it's a bad way to do endings. Uh, and I like Silent Hill as well. So, uh, yeah, great game. Well worth playing. Like, if, if somehow you missed it, like, please track it down. Like, yeah. it is it is, it is is not altogether long. In fact, the faster you play it, the game says, oh, you're a better person. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I don't, th- I, I don't, I don't think, think that's that, what it uh, says. No, yeah, not what it still uh, makes you, f- it makes you feel shitty for being slow is what I'll say. Like, I'm not, narratively, <laughs> narratively, we could get into that later. What exactly we'll, we'll, is we'll in the we'll, end? Yeah, we, I think we we'll have talk, to. Just, but I think the game is maybe sort of even if Rob's like, back on Monday, we just kick him out of the room for like thirty minutes no. and we like get hey, into hey, it. Hey, pussy, maybe run through a room a little faster. Is kind of the vibe I got Wait. from the end of the game. Um, it's. Uh, I'm gonna hold my tongue. Just hold your tongue. We'll get there. Um, I also finished uh, the Callisto Protocol. Not a good game. Did I enjoy it? Yes. Yes, I did. Uh, the Closer Protocol is like best expressed as uh, I, I I felt like I was playing like a sci-fi channel original with like the biggest, but like a budget given to James Cameron. And <laughs> I found that delightful. It's just a shitty B movie with like, but the most gorgeous one you've ever had a chance to encounter. Uh-huh. I don't like how the combat, like the bot, like the combat turned out. We went into all of that during our our kind of like pseudo review when the game the game originally came out. I don't think it gets any better. It has one of the all time horror games have bad end bosses traditionally. They just really don't know how to like that is that is a consistent theme in horror games. It's like what do we put at the end? Because games need you to have this you know moment of culmination of mechanics and resources and yada yada. And horror games tend to fall flat on their face um, when developing what a final boss should be. Um, and boy, Callisto Portugal both doesn't solve that and says, what if we made an even worse one? What if we made an all-time bad one? Um, but it's very pretty. I highly recommend. Pl- I think that game, its easy mode is normal. Its normal mode is hard. And its hard mode is extreme or whatever you would kind of declare that as. I, I, I feel like this is going to be a game that shows up on Game Pass sometime early this year. That's not inside information. It just feels like one of those <laughs> kinds of games. And if you get a chance to play it, if how I described it sounds appealing, just put that shit on easy. It won't be easy. It will just be more manageable and allow you to sort of enjoy what I think is the game's greatest strengths, which are like it looks pretty as shit um, in the ugliest way possible. Uh, and uh, for that, I enjoyed uh Drinking a couple of beers and finishing uh, the Callisto uh, protocol. Um, I, in, in the service of time, because we still have uh, mm-hmm. other things going on in this podcast, I will save uh, some of the other stuff uh, I finished, like God of War. Um, the one last uh, thing I'll, I'll mention before we uh, uh, transition to the next part of the podcast is uh, Sports Story. Early contender for biggest disappointment of the year, oh, even though it came out at the end no. of 2022. Uh, Golf Story. Such a, just a gem, just a wonderful, wonderful game that came out early in the Switch's life. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sports Story is it is extremely buggy. It has uh, somehow deep optimization issues for a top-down pixel game where you hit a golf ball. I don't know how that can run at a poor frame rate, but it does. I don't know how much to read into this like hidden developer room in the game that sort of is the team shit talking one another about the game's development it's kind of it gives bad vibes and <laughs> so I, I i played a couple hours i put it down go if you go to kotaku and search sports story you'll find the the piece that kind of explains that room a little further but i played a couple hours and was like boy 
this was a surprise drop for the holidays that should have mm. uh, the surprise should have been it's delayed again um <laughs> not uh not have come out before oh. the end of the year so i'm kind of like i waited this long for the game to come out i can wait a month or two while they do some passes at the game mm. i mean everything's as simple as i mean like just lots of spots where people are just not making straight up progress in the game Oof. and that's the kind of that that's a killer yeah. so uh, so I'm gonna give that a little more time uh, in the oven. They've said some patches are, are coming, but I have a hunch that even if it's patched, that it's still not going to be the game I was hoping uh, it was going uh, to be. Um, Ren, before we, I, I toss to the middle segment of this podcast. You have pasted something into the chat. Um, can you please give us a, a House of Representatives update? Has anyone died? No, no one has died yet. Uh, C-SPAN says, Representative McCarthy does not have the votes. Tenth speaker (laughs) vote possible today. The current standing as of this recording is 73 McCarthy, 72 Jeffries, 7 Donalds, 3 Hearn for some fucking reason, uh, and (laughs) 0 for others. Uh, the, The fact that they're adding in new candidates as the thing is proceeding is so fucking funny. It's so bad. It's so bad. What a, what a dumb, beautiful thing. Yeah, that is that is that is bad. Um, all right. Well, we are going to transition over uh, for the middle segment of this podcast, which is going to be. Do you want to hear Rob talk about do some more Pentiment interviews? So he wasn't supposed to do this third one. <laughs> uh, Rob did a series of interviews uh, 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 related to both Obsidian and uh, Pentiment uh, specifically with uh, Josh Sawyer um, and. The name of the the head of Obsidian, whose name I'm I'm blanking on, but that was the second interview. Um, th- over the course, if you listen to those interviews, you discovered that Rob uh, went to the uh, same college as Josh Sawyer, the design director on Pentiment, uh, and they actually shared a professor. Uh, and after the interview, <laughs> my understanding is Microsoft came back to Rob was like, "Hey." Josh think it'd be cool if we all got you and those people on a call together and did another conversation. And so you are going to hear that conversation between Josh Sawyer, Rob Zachney, um, Dr. Edmund Kern, uh, who is Rob and Josh's teacher, uh, and Dr. Winston Black, who is Josh's classmate, who also consulted on uh, Pentiment. And so I haven't heard this conversation, but I bet it's good. These have all been bangers that Rob has been been doing on, on the interviews. And, you know, we're hoping to do a lot more of these uh, throughout the year, including the whole crew. So... We're going to bounce over to that, and then we'll be back with a little bit of mailbag. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And we are back now once again to discuss Pentiment a bit more, and particularly the history it is based on. Uh, today, we are joined by Dr. Winston Black of St. Francis Xavier University and Dr. Edmund Kern of Lawrence University. 
and who was one of my professors and also one of Josh Sawyer's uh, as as well. And Winston, I assume you were a, a peer of uh, Josh's once upon a time. Exactly. Yeah, we, we overlap by several years. Uh, so yeah, like for a bit of, a bit of table setting, you both consulted on this game. Uh, can you explain, maybe starting with, uh, Dr. Kern, explain your academic specialties and sort of what you ended up bringing to bear on Pentiment? Well, I'm a historian of, uh, early modern Europe specializing in, um, German speaking areas of Europe and especially the Habsburg monarchy. Um, in addition, I've, you know, researched the history of uh, religion, magic, and witchcraft, and consider myself a historian of religious culture. And it was in that context that I first encountered Josh as a student oh so many years ago. My involvement in Pentiment began, yeah, I, yeah, I'm sure Josh would know the date, but it was probably five or six years ago. He was in uh, Appleton, and we were having dinner at a local restaurant, and he raised the issue of um, whether or not I might be willing to consult on a game that he was thinking about. I think he was still at the stage of, of pitching it um, rather than actually designing it, but he had a fairly good idea of how he wanted it to proceed. And uh, given the fact that I've spent a lot of time, at least metaphorically, in the 16th century, um, you know, I thought it was probably a good fit and a little bit of an adventure for me as well. And Winston, uh, your background and uh, involvement with the game. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I am a uh, medieval historian, uh, especially the high Middle Ages, 11th through 13th centuries. I specialize in the history of medicine and science. Uh, death and especially the Black Death, uh, the history of the uh, plague and uh, medicines and drugs that were used to treat diseases in the period. Um, and Josh contacted me um, about two years ago, I believe it was, uh, I think when um, uh, planning had come a lot farther uh, on the game uh, because he was able to show me some uh, mock-ups and characters but um, he knew he wanted a significant element of the life cycle, medicine and disease, uh, and just death, <laughs> a lot of death uh, and dead bodies as well. Um, and so we've stayed in touch over the years. I haven't seen him in person since 1999 or so, but uh, through Facebook and Twitter, we've kept track of each other. And... Um, yeah, it was a it was a great way to uh, really reconnect with him. And of course, we are also joined by Josh. Uh, Josh, I, I am curious. Like you know, I think we we talked a bit about Pentiment on a, on a previous show, but I am curious now, knowing knowing this background, uh, for how long was this period, this era as a setting, sort of stuck in your head? And when did Pentiment begin to like come together as a like? game development project you wanted to pursue i think um by the way i will say my excuse is that i got carried away telling my co-workers about the history of the albigensian crusade so that's my reasoning um i had covered for you nobody oh, was going to know that oh, you walked well, into the lecture I, late i blew it i have to admit that I, anyway um but no the 16th century or just the early modern period late medieval uh that's probably been an interest since i was in high school um 
just found it very interesting. I think transitional periods are very exciting and interesting to me. And uh, the more I kind of dug into how literacy changed society, um, and obviously the Reformation changed society a great deal, uh, I thought that I I had a great affinity for the time period in this region. And I wasn't quite sure, yes, this is this is the time period in which I would like to set any historical game, but when I started thinking about this game, which was around 2018, I immediately knew, like, I want to do early 16th century Holy Roman Empire, eventually that drifted specifically to being on a trade route in the uh, upper Bavarian area. So, yeah, I kind of coalesced around that. So, I'm curious uh, for for YouTube professors, like, you know, there's obviously, you know, you end up teaching intro classes to people. And then of course you, you teach more advanced courses, but I'm curious when you are dealing with sort of newcomers to university or people just like coming uh, into contact with this history and, and these themes for the first time, like what are some of the most dogged, like, uh, misunderstandings of the period uh, that the people tend to br- tend to bring the, the most like the assumptions that won't die uh, w- when people approach this era. Uh, I'll start off um, the the central sort of misconception that I have to deal with is the idea that you know belief in magic and the prosecution of witches was a kind of medieval phenomenon, and you know the 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 witchcraft trials of the European history took pro- took place primarily during those periods that we identify as the scientific revolution and enlightenment. You know, the high point was from 1580 to 1640, so well within the so-called early modern period rather than the medieval period. Um, more generally, I think people have a hard time negotiating the boundary between a past which in many respects was very, very different and a past which in other respects was not so dissimilar from our own time. You know, in other words, um, the sort of pace of life, the realities of life, the material conditions of life were very, very different. But when it comes to things like, um, you know, basic fears, anxieties, motives, you know, people were motivated by a lot of the same kinds of things that motivate us or people feared a lot of the same kinds of things that, that, that we feared, albeit in a radically different setting and within a radically different belief system. And so it's my job to try and negotiate that boundary so that they can recognize both similarity and difference in a sort of way that's, you know, historically sensible, so to speak. I don't yeah. know, Winston, whether you'd want to pick up with your own. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, yeah, um, those are some of the issues yeah, I'm dealing also with, uh, when, especially teaching the 16th and 17th century, the period of Pentiment. But moving back into the medieval period more broadly, I think what I want to try to overcome with students is they and pop culture in general tends to create this false binary where we today are rational and are and scientific and somehow more peaceful and the middle ages are just superstitious and overwhelmingly violent 
And the, these attitudes get indulged in, in movies and video games uh, that are set in the Middle Ages. And what I guess a simple lesson I bring to my students is especially true with the history of medicine and science. Yes, they were wrong, but that doesn't mean they're foolish or superstitious. They were deeply rational. And we can see some of that in Pentiment, where they're thinking about um, humors and the Socratic method and styles of argumentation and observation. And so they're deeply engaged with thinking and organizing their world. It's different than our way, and we need to understand the difference. But uh, it comes back to some of what Ed was saying, that these these people on an individual level are more like us than... um, we might tend to believe when we only focus on uh, the 95 theses or the Black Death or (laughs) the Crusades. If we just look at daily life, um, we we see ourselves there more easily. Well, you know, one thing that I've found myself saying over the years to my students is that, you know, peasants were ignorant of many things, but they were not stupid. Yes. And one thing that I know comes up in the game Pentiment is uh, inheritance strategies. Mm -hmm. You know, ordinary people had to think very complexly and very rationally about how to pass property from one generation to the next. You know, how wealth was to be divided up in not necessarily an equal fashion, but in an equitable fashion so that people could be taken care of um, in different ways, whether it was through marriage or through, in the case of women, the maintenance of dower, that is a right to a percentage of the property that they brought into the marriage and, you know, things of that nature. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that we still think about that. We may now think in terms of, well, how do we pay for health care? How do we pay, you know, how do we take care of parents who are too old to take care of themselves? How do we pay for higher education? But the same kinds of strategizing was was very much pre- were very much present in the 16th century. Sorry, this is a complete aside. It has nothing to do with pentiment, but I am so curious. I've got two academics here. I got two professors. I am curious whether or not, like you have detected uh, a, a change among students due to paradox video games. Because as you were talking about like inheritance law and such, like there's a series of video games, Crusader Kings, where like people who play this game get incredibly conversant in different like traditions of inheritance law that without this game, I don't think anybody would have heard of. And I am curious, like in the last 20 years, have you encountered students who are like down some odd little rabbit holes that you can trace back to like popular strategy games? Oh, I, I've, I've met a grad student who I, uh, after the fact, learned was deeply immersed in Crusader Kings 2. Um, and I, I could then uh, de- understand some patterns in their thought. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if I've seen it in, in my undergrads, though. I'm not sure what, what games they're playing. Fallout mostly, actually. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of any titles off the top of my yeah. head. But a number of students have approached me after class when we've been covering some esoteric topic and they say, oh, you really need to check out this game because that's one of the uh, sort of, you know, aspects of this game that you could pursue. So there is a lot of awareness. 
Uh, so, so I am curious, uh, you know, in terms of how the consultancy worked, uh, f- for one, like, like, have you all played the game or had a, had a chance to see how it is? And I'm curious, like, when you're working with Josh, like, to what degree uh, is it sending off questions just for background? And to what degree are you also seeing, like, uh, builds or, like, notes on a script? And, and Josh, feel free to jump in here uh, as well as how you sort of uh, utilize this expertise. Um, I'll, I'll jump in here, especially because uh, I finished the game just today uh, at, at lunchtime. And... Wept. I wept. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> you, you bastard! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I got, I got choked up like three or four distinct times in that game. Like there are yeah. a ser- there are a series of gut punches. Yeah. Usually at the opening or closing of different acts. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, without yeah giving away any secrets, but it yeah it it did come as a shock because I I didn't know about certain aspects of the game. My engagement with Josh was usually over some very specific questions. There's some broader issues of medicine and healing. Uh, we had a few uh, longer conversations about over Zoom or something. And then there was over, on and off over a period of about a year, uh, specific uh, email questions would would come my way. Uh, and uh, they were great, great little puzzles, especially because they often were directly related to my research. I, I, I could feel like this wasn't... Uh, taking away from my day job uh, <laughs> but, um yeah so it was yeah on and off probably a period of uh nine months uh, over 2020 and 2021 where yeah we dealt with little and bigger issues of uh medicine and doctors and midwives and so on i recall yeah. a few general questions to start out with and i put together some like longer reports on things like um you know, um, <clears throat> Jews in Europe, um, popular, you know, what we might call popular culture or, you know, the celebration of like holidays or holy days within the context of popular culture, um, things like that. But one of my favorite things to do uh, in terms of my involvement in this game was to just follow the sort of follow the trail towards an answer um, prompted by a question that Josh just emailed me from my perspective out of the blue. I'm sure it was something that had been on his mind for a while and, you know, that they had been slowly working into the game, but then I would get a question and I'd have to go in pursuit of an answer. And uh, those were kind of fun. You know, everything from like, you know, what color vestment might the, uh, you know, might a cleric be wearing for this particular day in this particular kind of um, celebration or, or ceremony um, to, you know, what, what was it like for women to inherit property during this period? What were their legal rights and obligations uh, as well as protections afforded them by the law and so it was always fun to just kind of hunt down you know and try to be as concise as possible in my response hunt down answers to those kinds of questions yeah and the way that that i tried to um utilize the consultants was um sparingly both because they don't have infinite time they both have a bunch of other responsibilities uh, but also, you know, I, I considered 
I considered it my responsibility to do as much research as I could on my own to try to put things together. And then it was usually when I was in a place of uncertainty or a dead end. Like, so there'd be cases where I thought I had the lay of the land and I'd be like, I think I understand how this dynamic works. I think I understand how these people would interact. I don't know. And so then I would send to Ed or, you know, like we talked a lot about the examination with Winston. I talked a lot about the examination of the body of the Baron and, you know, like all the nuances that went into that, like, would they cut the body open? And, you know, who is he? He's a Baron. Well, they're probably not going to jump at that. Um, His wife is coming. Okay. They're also probably not like, so there are all these considerations that are more about social dynamics and considerations than necessarily like a strict black and white. Yes, they would. No, they wouldn't. Um, and so it, it getting into those nuances was very important to make to make it feel plausible and make the characters feel like they were reacting as characters um, to the circumstance that was in front of them. Um, you know, we were actually going to do an examination of a body in the second act for someone who is of much lower status. That didn't come up, but like there was the potential there based on the training of the person who would have likely done it and a bunch of other things that maybe that would have been more like an actual autopsy. But Alas, it never happened. But anyway, I'm glad that I had all those conversations with Winston to figure that out or with Ed, you know, like, again, property inheritance. I thought I kind of understood it, but I didn't. And so, like, when I dug into it and I sort of proposed things, then Ed said, "Okay, here's the here's the nuance to this. And here are all the dynamics that come into it. And um, I think that getting into all those details again, like Ed said, they largely are thinking about (laughs) real things that impact them on a daily basis, or maybe not on a daily basis, but like something like the toadfall, the the de- death, essentially the death tax became increasingly onerous. And if if, if your the head of your family dies and half of your belongings <laughs> essentially are taken away from you, that's not nothing. Like people care about that. And so understanding the extent to which this existed in society and what tools people employed to fight against it or work around it was was really important. Um, so yeah, and then the other place was just dead ends. Sometimes I would try to do research and either I couldn't find it in a language that I could understand or it was fragmentary or, you know, it's like a $500, <laughs> you know, like volume of something that I just can't get. And uh, so then I would reach out and often to Ed and he would, I remember one in particular where I was just desperate to find sort of practical information on hunting like not so much about high hunts of nobles, but like just the practice, the act of, of going on a hunt. And I really, it was very hard to find. And Ed found a 1910 manuscript in German in Fraktur. <laughs> and I was like, let me dig into this. And it, it gave me the info I needed to do the act two hunt. So it's, it's all that sort of stuff where it's usually either dead ends or knowing that I don't know knowing that I'm in an uncertain place and needing to reach out for, for actual expertise rather than my kind of amateur sleuthing. There was a nice little out for me that I knew that Josh was a good historian because oftentimes I could find something and I probably wrote a half dozen, dozen times. I could look into this further if you want me to, or you could just take a look at this. <laughs> Here's a PDF. Take take a look. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and Josh usually rose to the occasion and said, "Okay, you know, he was going to do it." So. so one of the themes that I 
really appreciate in Pendiment is sort of this idea of the various contested grounds of thought that exist and the idea of like, for instance, in the town, there's kind of the question of, well, who are we? Like, where are we from? Is it, it turns out to be the central mystery or the key to the central mystery. Uh, but, you know, you also see it when we're, we're talking about like medicine uh, in this period. Like this is a like a thing that runs through this is this notion of there are traditions of folk remedies and like inherited knowledge that exists in this community, but it is not taken seriously by elites, but it is vital to the function of the community. And then you have this, you know, later in the game, you hang out with some of the like uh, higher status characters, the, the town doctor, uh, the inventor, and they're like hanging out with a bunch of like traveling uh like Italian scholars and they sort of try to pull you into, into a debate about, you know, does medicine need to move beyond the classical texts that we've inherited? That is the only, because they're classical, because they're old, this is the only recognized authoritative text that exists, even though we all of us know that they are now hopelessly out of date because, you know, kind of the third element happening here is that there is increasing awareness of more recent techniques uh, that appeared in like the, the Middle East, but also in more cosmopolitan parts of Europe, you were starting to see the scientific method starting to take shape. You're starting to see investigations in this. And this is one of the interesting things I, I found about this like game. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to like have you discuss it a bit. Cause you know, when we talked about the misconceptions people have, uh, it's very easy to, you know, imagine in this period that everyone is kind of flying blind when it comes to medical care and like, how does the body work? We like to, I think we, we tend to adopt the sort of the, the Monty Python lens of, of history where they probably believe this kind of stuff. And what I find so interesting in Pentiment is that you actually kind of have a weird thing where there's things they're allowed to acknowledge uh, because they're, you know, like the, the inherited classical text, but they know they're wrong. But because of like social, the, the social importance placed on these things, they can't move on from it, even though you have newer and better sources of information. That's, that's, a, that's the thing I find really interesting is that like you sort of get this picture into an era where people kind of know the field is changing rapidly, but in a weird way, it can't be codified. Yeah, I mean that's uh, a good point there. Where we we tend to focus, and it, it it's a trap that we history professors fall into a lot. Where we'll we'll grab a single date and say this changed, <laughs> or this book was published, and uh, that creates some major marker in history. And they, they, it is worth knowing these. The one I'm thinking here about where we're talking about bodies would be. Andreas Vesalius's uh, on the fabric of the human body in 1527, so same time as Pentiment Act Two. Yes, hugely important, but that didn't change things overnight. <laughs> it, that was a more limited urban phenomenon, and the classical and medieval traditions, whether it's of the herbal remedies or of their understanding of anatomy and um, how you treat injuries, they're it doesn't go away. They're going to keep on holding on to a lot of the medieval ideas 
100, 200 years and more. Uh, so I think that was one of the things that I was happiest about uh, seeing play out in the game where the, the well, the pentiment, the overlaying of the traditions, the what was taught in the medieval university for 300 years by this point is not going to just go away. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, we're going to have this mixing and layering still of traditions, whether it's a medicine or law or of uh, religious beliefs. Um, but, yeah, I think we can see it, especially with those characters grappling with these medical questions, I think because they're not as contentious as the religious ones. Where hmm. do we should we still be reading Dioscorides, a first century author, or Pliny the Elder, for another first century author? Do we retranslate them, or do we just throw them out? <laughs> um, so, yeah, it the questions are there, but it's not going to change the way they did things for centuries. And I, I should say that that specific conversation with the Bolognese doctors was something that I discussed with Winston because I I know I wanted to have this this sort of social encounter. But then I said, like, what would they be talking about? Like, what would these these Italian doctors working in a city where there's a lot of experimentation going on, talking with this German doctor who's clearly very, very interested. He, Werner, Werner Schultz is always, like, talking about, like, Italian techniques and Italian texts and things like that. And also, even Brother Florian, the infirmarian, in the Abbey, he's very interested in, in reading Italian texts and learn some Italian so that he can read some of this stuff. And uh, but yeah, and it's not even inclusive in their own conversation. They have very strong disagreements. Um, Werner says, well, we still use it in all of our practices. So seems like the answer settled. We're just going to keep using it. Um, <laughs> but then Angelo and the other characters are like, I don't think it's that clear. Like, um, so yeah, it's uh, none of the stuff is just going to go away overnight. And you know, I think Winston and I also talked about like some herbal remedies and techniques were effective either partially or actually just totally effective and some were not or they, you know, they didn't really they had a placebo effect, but they didn't have the ability to sort all of this stuff out. So in without better knowledge, they're just going to keep using all of this stuff as they go on. And some of the some of the techniques they use are actually effective and good and helpful, and some are not, and some are probably harmful, just as some emerging surgical techniques could be helpful and some are probably extremely harmful. Um, but yeah, that's just, it's, they're in a very, uh, again, times of change, I think, are very interesting to explore in a story. I, I loved uh, the element uh, later on, but it's not, I don't think, giving away too much, but uh, uh, Sister Gertrude, I think it is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she's still using Hildegard of Bingen from the 12th yeah. century. And um, whether or not they actually were using Hildegard of the period is neither here nor there. We know that plenty of 11th and 12th century medieval medical texts are still filling the monastic libraries in this period and being used and being put into print. So it's they're not simply replacing one system with another willy-nilly. Yeah. <laughs> well, and Winston, you alluded to something interesting there that hadn't really occurred to me, but uh, but I'm curious if this is something we do see in the in the currents of history around this period, which is this idea that you know there are areas where discoursing too freely about certain subjects that are very dynamic in this period is very dangerous, either politically or like theologically. 
And then there are places where you, you can discuss a little bit more freely, but those can also like, you know, are they also being used as places where you can sort of by proxy discuss bigger issues about like, like the doctrines people are cleaving to uh, in this era? And I'm, I'm curious, like when you look at this era in like medicine and science, like do like do you see a bit of that uh, in, in terms of this this being a space where uh like freer thought is permitted, but it is also sort of tiptoeing around maybe more central questions of the period. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it comes back to this question of, uh, of authority of where do we get our knowledge from? And after the high and late middle ages being satisfied with centuries here of knowing this is, this, this is our knowledge. We've got, the Bible and Aristotle and Hippocrates, we, we know how the universe works. But we, I think one of those, safe, medicine could form one of those safer areas where you could skirt around some of the more dangerous issues that we see with Lutheranism uh, and um, questions about, uh, I guess, the, the very economic identity of peasants and lords. So, like, uh, contemporary, nearly with the Pentiment story, is the German doctor Paracelsus. Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim Paracelsus. And he made a big show, uh, directly inspired by Luther. He threw his copies of Galen and Hippocrates on a fire to show, I'm throwing away the old medicine, and I'm creating a new way of thought. And people would actually call him the the Luther of medicine, uh, the Luther of medicine. And so I think you see, here's a way where you could deal with some of these bigger issues of overcoming, throwing away ancient authority, maybe a little more safely than uh, the the Reformation itself, which sadly, like of course, led to the wars of religion and the death of millions <laughs> of people. Uh, medicine wasn't quite as uh, dangerous. That respect i we the game ends around uh 1543 and there was actually at one point there was a plot element involving on the revolution of celestial spheres mm-hmm. and like that was only published after copernicus died yeah. he had been talking about it with people and almost in a way like but like wouldn't it be crazy if the sun were the center <laughs> 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 i mean i'm not saying it is but like wouldn't that be crazy because that would make sense right but that's crazy um so yeah like it it really depended on whose authority you're challenging and if you're if you're challenging essentially biblical authority uh that's a kind of rough road to walk obviously for copernicus he said like by the way uh after i'm gone uh send this stuff out but um yeah it's uh it's an interesting period and i think you're right though depending on the authority being challenged and in what company you're doing it, there's more or less leeway to talk about that. Um, something that has come up in the context of, I've seen people comment on the the overall kind of, let's say class in big quotation marks I'm making here in the air, class distinctions, and like that the game is viewing this period through a Marxist kind of lens, which is a little true, but, but um, now I'm going to lost my train of thought, which is incredible. Oh, uh, I was going to say, like, one of the critiques that Engels 
had of the peasant uprising is that it couldn't really be revolutionary, which in part is true because the peasants were very careful in many cases to not tread on the emperor. They're like, look, man, my issue is not with the emperor. The issue is with our lords. Our lords are being bad. We love the emperor. The empire is great. Long live the emperor. But <laughs> got to do something about these taxes, please. And so everyone has to be aware of power dynamics, you know, like whether you're discussing religious things like like Boxlov in the in the forest, the Romani has some extremely outlandish Minocchio like um, religious beliefs. But he's kind of shooting the shit in the woods with you. Um, he's not going up to the abbot and telling him these things. Um, so, yeah, the company you're keeping and who you're talking about and who those people are going to talk to obviously have a big influence on how that stuff is received. And in the case of peasants doing an uprising, they're like, look, this isn't about the emperor. This is about our lords managing our daily lives. So please, emperor, don't kill us for doing this. Yeah, as as both of you have pointed out, so much of these discussions and so much of the controversy is context dependent. Um, in other words, you might say certain things in certain company, but not those things in different company. Um, another element to this, at least when it comes to the level of what we might call learned discourse, um, there was actually quite a bit of Freedom isn't quite the right word, but um, quite a bit of discretion to present odd ideas as long as they were presented as speculation. Um, in fact, this is what gets Galileo into trouble about 100 years later, is that he's given permission to explore the Copernican system, but he's told to do so as speculation. And um, he unfortunately names the character defending the old Aristotelian Ptolemaic system, the simpleton. And um, so he's not even thinly veiling his, uh, his own opinion, so to speak. But, you know, if we go back to the early 16th century, one of the great advantages of setting the game during this period is that it's a period of tremendous flux. Um, not only in terms of changes in medical knowledge, not only in terms of the shift from a kind of feudal system it, where there's a landlord vassal or land, excuse me, a lord serf relationship toward a landlord tenant relationship, but also in religion as well. It's not going to be until the 1560s, 1570s that doctrinal churches that we can identify, so to speak, as, you know, doctrinally Lutheran, doctrinally Calvinist, doctrinally Catholic, in a new uh, post-Council of Trent way, begin to emerge. And so there's a lot of room to just, for these characters to explore these ideas and the different opportunities that he are emerging out of this 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 period of flux, so to speak. I was actually going to ask because I can't remember the exact year, but when did Moore write uh, Utopia? It was around this. It was around this time. It was early 16th think, century. Yeah, uh, I want to say 1530, 15. Yeah, I think is the period. But yeah, he did, he did the classic thing where the character espousing all the uh, objectionable beliefs was not Thomas More. <laughs> It was this fictional character, and then the character Thomas More was like, those ideas are so crazy. How can you say that? 
But yeah, again, when you're challenging the king's authority, you have to uh, kind of be careful and say like, no, this isn't me saying this. This is this crazy hypothetical character. Uh, and if you don't do that, then yes, you become Galileo. One of the, uh, so the funny thing is when I was playing Pentiment, I definitely felt like <laughs> I expected there to be a lot more wars of reformation stuff happening in your face right because the opening like the opening when you meet the 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 noble who is going to be the first murder victim and uh gets you in trouble because he is like touching every like live wire uh conversation topic you possibly can but like definitely there's a lot of hanging the reformation shotgun uh on the wall over the fireplace and what's funny is i prepared for the game to be much more Again, I get maybe sort of about the popular, you know, imagination of what this period was like, where one day it's, uh, you know, the church triumphant. And then two weeks later, it's uh, a bunch of us are Lutherans now. Uh, and it's it's time for, uh, you know, the, the princes to assert their authority. But what I thought was really interesting here is that in some ways, like some of the story even setting aside the Reformation stuff that is happening in the background is, I don't know if it's a revolution in the church is probably the wrong way to put it, because what it feels more like is that the edifice of the medieval church is just kind of rotting and crumbling like beneath you uh, in this story. And a different, a different instantiation of, of the Catholic church is taking its place that the, the monastery and the scriptorium are themselves artifacts of a different era of of church and church governance and that's something that i found really interesting because it's not something often as one talks about when when we cover like changes in the catholic church in this period it's always about the reformation of the popular imagination it's often the, the conversations are joined what i find interesting here is that already there's signs that some of the the pillars of the church that have existed for, you know, centuries, if not millennia at this point, those are already giving away almost, those are giving way independent of Lutheran. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to talk through this again, the, the, this uh, idea of complicating what for a lot of people is a simple causal story uh, about, about the, the, the change of the religious complexion in Europe. Um. Yeah. I mean, that's, because it is complicated. Uh, and, and you know, we have a Benedictine Abbey that is at least several centuries old, and many characters in the game don't even know how old it is, which is not surprising. Um, and it, so it's a double monastery. It's Benedictine. It has a scriptorium inexplicably at the beginning of the 16th, well, explained, but like, wow, that's crazy. And yeah, it wasn't like the Catholic Church formed and then it just existed. And then in the 16th century, Luther said, this is crazy. And then everyone, you know, then there was this big divide. Like, and also it's worth saying that one, there were many other would-be reformers, or Jan Hus is like a hundred years earlier. It didn't go well. Um <laughs> many, many other people. And and in this period, like Erasmus, there were many people who also said, don't get me wrong, the Catholic Church needs to reform things. They need to fix things, but they weren't going as far. And in fact, we're separating themselves from Luther and say, we're saying, 
hey, you're, this is kind of getting out of hand. Like, we have to let the church be the church, and they are the authority, and we can critique it, but, like, it has to be done within within them. Um, so, yeah, the idea that it was really this continuous history that then was interrupted by Martin Luther, and then everyone just kind of split. Um, and, yeah, I mean, if you go to Bavaria right now, it's not exactly a Lutheran hotbed. So even in the best of cases, it probably wasn't going to immediately like, become Lutheran. But, uh, yeah, it was more complicated. And and that was also to sort of show, because there was a distinction in the peasant uprising, it's interesting because there's a conflation of the peasants' cause with Luther, which then happened in the period, and Luther wrote against the thieving, murderous hordes of peasants, explicitly rejecting their association of, of their stuff with him, um, to which some peasants said, like, no, we didn't even get this idea from you. This is our lives suck and it's not Christian and the foundation of it can be found in the Bible as, as we describe in the 12 articles. And they even say at the end of the 12 articles, their 12th article is, yo, if we're out of line here and you guys don't think that us saying that there's a basis for this in doctrine is true, let us know. And we'll like, we can, you can change our minds, but, um, but it's more complicated. Um, The causes are not the same and the idea of the of the church being this monolith is just it's not true. I'm kind of rambling at this point, but yeah, that was the point. <laughs> you know, I mean, it took a while for Lutherans to become Lutheran. In other words, you know, I mean, Luther sometimes used the phrase evangelical Christianity, referring back to a Christianity that was based on Holy Scripture. But, you know, the idea of a Lutheran church, as I alluded to earlier, doesn't really emerge until, you know, the 1560s, 1570s. So there's several decades of flux where there are people who are, you know, following Lutheran doctrine or taking it in directions that Luther himself may not have foreseen, who still think of themselves as not exactly Catholic because they've you know, they've made a break with the church in a sense, but they're not thinking of themselves as this other thing yet, this easily identifiable denomination. That takes several decades to emerge. So one of the things, like ultimately in the end, like one of the keys to the mystery is this idea of the town itself being contested ground uh, in terms of what are its origins? What are the origins of the people who live here? What are the origins of the political order that's sort of formed around them? And a lot of it centers on like whose land was this? Uh, you know, was it was it was it pagan land? Uh, you know, were the were, did the Romans convert? Uh, you know, con, you know, pagans to Christianity? Uh, did Christians convert Romans? Like this is. The, the mystery ends up hinging on this, uh, which was interesting in a couple ways, because for one thing, it's it is. I think it's easy, easy for us to sort of forget that people in the Middle Ages or early, early uh, Renaissance might have had similar questions about just like origin stories for like we recognize ourselves as some sort of community or like proto nation, but like, what is that? What is that sort of founded on? But it also kind of struck me as being reminiscent as well in terms of, of some questions that seem increasingly like central to uh, 
modern scholarship and imaginings of the medieval period and reformation. The, the idea that uh, identity has always been complicated, has always been a, a political conversation, uh, you know, and not necessarily just a matter of recognizing, you know, autochthonous communities that, that, that sprang up somewhere. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm curious if that, you know, for, for one, Josh, I'm curious if that's kind of intentional, if, the, if this is kind of a, a, a the, this sort of mystery that exists at the start of this, is this also kind of a proxy for some of the ways that this is contested ground uh, today in like, in like popular discourse and then for our two professors, I'm also curious to what degree did these conversations kind of echo uh, conversations that are happening within academic circles about how we like handle these subjects uh, in in academia? I think, um, or if I may, um, I was just going to say that um, you know I think identity in a lot of cases uh, people take for granted or they either take for granted or they accept at face value the stories that they've been told by their own families, the things that, that get passed down. So a lot of the, there's some like sort of sketchy assumptions within the community of Tassing that reflect very real things that have happened for me. In I've done a lot of genealogical research and discovered things, and other people have asked me to do genealogical research for them, and they have had their worlds kind of rocked because they, they're like, we are German. Our family has been German forever and ever and ever. And we go back and like, you're Danish. Like you're like, not not ambiguously, like your whole family is Danish. There's no German here um, or, or Norwegian or something else. Or like, actually your family didn't come from this region at all. They're from somewhere else entirely. And it it is uh, it shakes people because again, their their family told them this and their family was told that by someone else. And so we pass on a lot of this stuff orally <laughs> and also records are fallible and fragile. And yes, we have digitization. Yes, we have incredible capacity for communication now that didn't exist before, but all of this is very fragile and also like not necessarily true <laughs> or true to like to the best that we can understand. Like it's, it's just, it's, it's a very, um, it's a very sketchy thing. And in many cases, people live in places where they don't, they don't. They literally don't recognize the foundations of things. Like um, you can walk around Cologne, and that was Colonia. That was a Roman colony. And sometimes it's obvious that this is you're walking by Roman stuff. And sometimes it is literally impossible unless you're really directly looking at it to realize, like the idea of. Well, I'm not going to get into this, but like there are churches within Cologne that are built on Roman crypts. Like, sure, built a Christian church right over the top of that. No problem. It's totally fine. Um, so, you know, I think we still deal with this. We still deal with either accepting a kind of a story that's been told to us, uh, not necessarily told to us in, um, with malice or ill intent, but passed on in good faith that somehow got twisted over time and it's inaccurate or totally wrong or whatever. Um, but it's obviously of central importance in, in the story of Pentiment. Yeah, the the narrative, especially I mean, of the whole game, but especially the the final act of yeah, discovering these layers and deciding what they're going to do with that past. <laughs> do we confront it in a radical way? Do we sweep it under the rug? I mean, it it really reminded me uh, painfully. But we see this every year right now as the internet battle for 
where did Christmas come from happens again. <laughs> and I used to fight that, but I've given up. But yeah, you got you know, really, uh, on the one side, Christmas begins with baby Jesus, and the other saying, no, uh, evil Christians stole it from uh, Roman Saturnalia or this or that pagan feast. And again, we fall into that simple binary that people want. Um, and uh, Pentiment, again, shows that both are true. It's a <laughs> lot more complicated. Yes, there are Roman foundations to the stories and to the literal buildings, but you need to give credit uh, and, and diligence to the, the centuries of development of St. Mauritius and, and Satya and uh, whoever it may be that these are real for these people, just as real as the buildings, even if that uh, the word you use there, uh, Rob, uh, the autochthonous <laughs> foundations, uh, yeah, are, are challenging to some people. Uh, so, yeah, it's it, it comes back to yeah, the teaching we do. We do the hit. We do try to do history, but often good history is history of history, and then the history of the history of someone's history, <laughs> and the layer and the layer and the layer, and um, showing how delightfully complicated the layers are. Yeah, I mean, you know, history as a discipline has been divided up into sometimes what we call fields, you know, Europe, Africa, East Asia, things like that. But really pretty much within all of these fields, the movement has been towards greater recognition of globalism or what's sometimes called transnationalism. And the basic idea behind these approaches, I mean, to be really reductive about it, is to pay attention to the interconnectedness of things. And one really fruitful development has been the application of post-colonial methodologies to earlier periods of European history, where you can begin to see these layers, you can begin to see these interconnections, so that you know what was once thought, as Josh was suggesting, as, you know, Ech Deutsch, pure German, um, you know, really isn't um, and never was in a sense. There's an ongoing conversation and discussion, not only in academic circles about the interconnectedness of things, but I dare say probably in the past there was this ongoing discussion about identity, who we are, where we came from, and so on down the line. Yeah, this... Like, I couldn't help but, like, this part of the story about, especially the way it, it concerns Roman origins uh, and the fact that some people like the idea that they're all, like, descended from Romans uh, and that this is a, a triumph of Christianity over, uh, you know, the virtuous Romans who just needed that one last thing to become uh, <laughs> God's elect. But, like, it reminded me a lot of, uh, like, because I follow this conversation a little more, it being my background, but, like, ongoing conversations in... Uh, the field of classics and sort of trying to deal with the fact that like it draws people who have a predisposition to white supremacist ideologies, even without necessarily knowing that that's what they're being drawn to. But like it attracts people, you know, it's a, it's a meme now on Twitter, you know, if, like if somebody has a white marble statue of a classical author, buckle your seatbelt. You're about to hear the the worst, most offensive shit which, in your life. Which I got to say is so pure, perfect that their image of the past is the stripped bare 
marble. Yep. That is such a perfect encapsulation of what is wrong with that. <laughs> but it, but it reminded me of that of like the, the classics field is struggling with this with like you know now you're having to figure out like how do you responsibly like teach these subjects because you're drawn to it because you you do believe these these fields have value uh and these works and these cultures are are particularly worth worth studying but also there is a like it's kind of indivisible from this idea of the West that has become like deeply problematic and frequently toxic. And in, in some ways, like when I look at the, you know, the story that's happening in Pentiment where there's people who are like, you know, <laughs> like there, there are people who are like, we, you know, in some ways it's kind of, you know, uh, two different versions of it. You have some of the people who are nostalgic for like, man, we used to be virtuous pagans, just like hanging out in the woods <laughs> and live, you know, living according to our beliefs. And then we were, we were brutally colonized and these things were, were suppressed, but this is our land. We're the ones who it truly belongs to. And then you have people who are like, Oh yeah. You know, the, we're descended from the Romans who came and fixed this place up. And like, we're, we're descended from the, 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 the saints, uh, you know, of this, of this period. And that, that, sort of put me in mind of these of these ongoing debates where people are trying to lay claim to wildly disparate like historical narratives and traditions but also with an eye toward like claiming some sort of natural moral right to a worldview there is um i know that i've talked a lot about name of the rose as an inspiration for the game um umberto Acos Bottolino was also an inspiration and part of that a big part of the story involves the titular character and his buddies at the University of Paris concocting an entire false history about the three kings <laughs> in Cologne and constructing a fake body to legitimize the coronation of the emperor, who is his adoptive father. Um, but like Cologne, the three crowns in the crest of Cologne represent the three kings. And so it's kind of echo saying, what if a board university student and his buddies actually just concocted all of this? Um, sure, that could happen. Like in many cases, we have one source, two sources on, on what happened and we have no archeological evidence. And we go like, all right, sure. I guess this is the way that it is. But like, that was a whole effort to, again, to specifically legitimize this one guy's coronation because of the association of this stuff. But it's all based on a fabrication. It's all based on a fiction. And yes, like you said, many people don't understand why they're being drawn to this, but in many cases, it's a simplified kind of heroic narrative. It's, it's not complicated. And the thing is, I, I see classicists and I see historians that are exhausted on Twitter, especially trying to convey the nuance and the difference. And it's so hard when there are so many people who want a very simple clean story that is told in a straightforward way with no, but also, and you have to consider, but sometimes they don't want to hear any of that. And that's a, that's a, that's gotta be very hard for people right now in those fields. Well, like most pointedly, I, I think like a lot of times in games where this discussion tends to come up is it tends to be in this really reductive. Uh, so were they all white there or not? Were they all white people? And like coming from the classics background, obviously, you know, there's the, well, we don't really know, like race wasn't constructed like in the same way. We know that in a lot of like, you know, major cities, of course, in this period, like, no, they're wildly diverse, like, like cities have been throughout history, but like, you know, you end up 
in this weird place where it's like, I don't know, man, like we can't like pull the demographic surveys of like the Balkans in, in like the 1000s and be like, it was this. And if they'd ever seen somebody with darker skin, they would have lost their mind. We like, but often the discussion puts you in these weird places of like, you're being asked to make like blanket statements about how race existed and was perceived in these earlier periods. And the weird thing is like, at least in the classics field, these discussions don't, they don't correlate with the sources. Like, cause the sources weren't tend not to be interested in this stuff in the same way. Uh, and, I, and I'm curious, like how you experience that as, as medievalists and, and early, early, early modern scholars. Yeah, it is um, sad to say an issue that is in many ways tearing the field apart. <laughs> uh, questions over race or the construction of race in the Middle Ages, the very definition, can we use the word medieval or Middle Ages for anywhere outside of Western Europe? Whose medieval is it anyway? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's, it is something I, I grapple with in my teaching and um, – Certainly so glad to see the uh, Ethiopian Coptic monk, uh, Sebhat, is that his name? Yeah, in, in the game, um, where, yeah, I find students, they do, they do actually want, they're, they're now being raised in a world of assumed diversity, and I think that's good. Um, generally, the students are more open-minded than a Twitter thread. <laughs> um, uh, and... It is exciting but difficult to to find that way to expand the expand the narrative. But then it, we we run into the problem as professors say, I've got my training really in England and France and Holy Roman Empire, <laughs> and I want to talk about North Africa. I want to talk about the Near East or even farther. Can I? Should I? <laughs> and so uh, it, it's an exciting time, but um, it's it's a time when these boundaries, as, as, as uh, Ed was addressing, are are fruitfully being torn down. But we're we're now asking now we've got the big question of what are we left with? How do we rebuild our history of history? I think a lot of people don't have the time yeah. to look into the complexities of the past. And so, you know, I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. Um, you know, we need to generalize. Um, you know, we cannot always particularize. It seems to me that telling stories about the past involves a kind of constant navigation back and forth between what you hope to be productive generalizations and the recognition that once you begin to really focus in on something, you see a very complicated picture. And, you know, we're slowly weaving into the story of European history, whether it's, you know, the period of classical antiquity, where, you know, before there was a Europe in a sense, uh, or the European Middle Ages or the European modern period. We're slowly weaving into that story um, an awareness that there were a great variety of people moving around. You know, were the majority of people, you know, ethnically European, whatever that means? Yes. Were they linguistically European, whatever that means? Yes. But that didn't mean that you didn't have very different kinds of people moving throughout the area. 
Um, you know, perhaps not in the same large numbers as we see today, but it was not this kind of, you know, whitewashed society where everybody looked the same, talked the same, and believed the exact same things. We get that false picture from our desire to generalize. I try to deal with some of these issues on the simplest level just by illustrating for students or readers uh, a few key figures. Uh, one of my favorites is a monk, uh, Constantine the African, in Italy. And everyone knows he's from Africa. We don't know what he looked like. No one was concerned with his skin color. But it was it was essential to his identity and the people around him that, oh, yeah, you came from, we now know, probably Tunisia. But you're an African, and that's something they know, <laughs> a minority, but they're is part of their European world. And there's plenty of figures who we, we can name like that. As we wrap up here, uh, the last thing I want to sort of uh, cite is so much of this game centers on big community events and feasts and celebrations uh, in this. And it did put me in mind of uh, a viral Twitter thread, thread talking about uh you know, the medieval peasant life, uh, sort of portraying it as an idyllic time of uh, very vibes-based living uh, that, you know, the capitalism, like, took this away from us. And the medieval peasant actually had tons of time just hang with the hang with the buds uh, and, and like, have big festival celebrations. And that's sort of the last thing I wanted to sort of raise is to what degree is some of this nostalgia just completely rose tinted and to what degree is it it founded on something because you know i was talking to um you know someone else today in the in the games industry uh who sort of noted that you know they suspect one reason that you know big chatty podcasts have gotten so popular is we live in an age of like profound isolation profound so profound social atomization uh and i think one reason that penman is so charming is because like it's kind of a fantasy of like every day you kind of go out there and you take part in the fabric of the life of a community that probably many of us do not have any sort of experience with today. Uh, and, and, and so I'm uh, like, to sort, as we sort of wrap this up, I am curious to what degree, uh, you know, we find this idea of communal living or community life, uh, you know, in Pentiment, and, and and sort of these these ideas that like this sort of alienation is a is a capitalist a capitalist phenomenon. I'm curious to what degree uh, you you sort of evaluate that as well founded, and to what degree it's 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 kind of just rose tinted nostalgia. I'm gonna take that, Ed. <laughs> it, it's mostly nostalgia. Yeah. To give a very um, non historical answer. I'd recommend that those people try and grow an acre of wheat <laughs> and turn it into flour by the end of the growing season. Um, it was an enormous, I mean, yes, the, the communal aspect of that sentimentality, I think, was in a sense there. Um, but that is, I think, treated, as you suggested, in ways that are characteristic of people who put on rose-tinted glasses. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was it was an enormous amount of work, an enormous amount of labor, and not just for peasants. You know, people who were involved in the crafts or the trades, you know, regularly worked with the sun. And when the sun was out for 13 or 14 hours a day or more, you worked for 13 or 14 hours a day 
or more. And so, um, you know, in a sense, we have a lot more leisure now than people did in pre-modern and early modern times. Although there were times of the years, excuse me, there were times of the years where they did, um, you know, obviously not do as much labor as during the, uh, the growing season. Yeah, I, I'm reminded, I, I think it was you, Josh, uh, a comment you made on, on Twitter about uh, quoting uh, Lady Downton, uh, uh, <laughs> Dower, Dower what's this, a weekend? <laughs> and that, I mean, that's in the early 20th century, but yeah, that's it's, for all the humor there, it's a reminder. Yeah, they didn't have a weekend. <laughs> they had church, yes, and is mostly obligatory by the 16th century. And uh, for the first part of your question about this, the you know, rose-tinted image of feasts all the time, uh, it was almost, it's almost a pre-internet meme. I think it's already earlier in the 20th century, you would get books which would list all of the medieval feasts and make the erroneous claim that, oh, well, the lazy medieval Catholic peasant would have every one of these days off. No, <laughs> they have, they, those feasts didn't necessarily exist in their community and they still are working. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they're not out plowing the fields, but you are mending your clothes. You're tending your home garden. You are slaughtering the pig. The list goes on and on and on. You work almost every daylight hour you can nearly every day of the year. And so yeah, we can maybe look fondly back on the tighter knit community but these people did not have it easy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it, it is weird to reconcile the idea of, of peasant uprisings based on very real material needs and, and difficulties with actually everything is chill and awesome. Um, and I mean, like, you know, to the extent there's a bit of there's a bit of a fantastic element to Piero Camparese's Bread of Dreams. But he's talking about a very real thing, which is people were starving a lot in Europe, like food scarcity was incredibly common. Um, and yes, let's say they were having feasts. Who is cooking all that? Who's preparing? Like, again, you're raising these animals, you're slaughtering these animals, you're doing an enormous amount of work to actually get them ready to eat. Um, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of labor. You got extremely high child mortality. This is not a great period of time. I, I do believe very strongly, I will say that especially in a village, in a rural community, um, I do think the sense of community is orders of magnitude tighter than what we experience in our lives right now, in our physical surroundings. That's, of course, like, that's just kind of, I, I think that makes sense. Yeah. But the kind of, um, the kind of kicking it back, I, every time I want to ask a person, like, did you just watch the Terry Jones um, overview of the medieval period? Because you're kind of yeah. saying all the things that he says in there, which are, entertaining but not necessarily great um but yeah uh so again i think this is nostalgic but i'm obviously i'm going to agree with the experts here and say um community yes easy living no on the other hand every day i was playing xandrius and i'm just hanging out like vibing with the townsfolk he, he i want, it, I want what he has he yeah <laughs> yeah uh all right well thank you so much for a wonderful discussion i could talk like loads more about stuff in pentiment uh like i we have time to dig into the fact like that there are clearly queer people like in that story and how are they making accommodations with the religious and also societal pressures uh that that surround them i mean it's it's, it's really well handled uh you. you know in that 
in that story uh, and, and seeing how that plays out across like the course of a lifetime, uh, which is one of the, the joys of that is seeing a generation pass uh, in this, in this game. Uh, but yeah, I think we'll, we will have to leave it there. Uh, Dr. Kern, Dr. Black, uh, you know, Josh, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Uh, and thanks for a lovely discussion. Thanks for having My me. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And we're back. Uh, Rob, great job with that interview, buddy. Crushing it. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much. <laughs> Can you add in, Rob, Cobb, Cotto? Could yeah. you go find a thanks? Oh, yeah. Or some, something? Sure. And just, and just I'll go find a Rob Robin thanks. There? Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Thank, that's, th- thank you, Cotto, for, no problem. for doing that. Um. Questions, you can send them in to gamingadvice.com with the subject line question. It's a new year, new mailbag. We won't get rid of the old ones, but they're writing some new ones. Uh, <laughs> new year, new mailbag, but we just transferred all of the the things from the old mailbag. Yeah. Just dumped them but, into you know, the new you might get pref- I mean, Mailbag like is nice else, and new. Yeah. You're going to get preferential treatment if you're at the top. Yeah. Like, scroll down. Psh, that's a problem. <laughs> uh, this one comes in from Justin. Hi, I'll just listen to your Elden Ring spoiler cast and enjoyed it very much. Wow. I was especially interested in the conversation uh, towards the end about community. At first, I was nodding my parasocial head. That's very funny. Quote, it is cool that these games make community part of the game, end quote. But then I started to introspect about the 70 hours I spent with Elden Ring. It's fun to tell stories about how friends tell stories. And it's true. People tell those stories. I've told those stories. And the trust that From places in its players also gets me and many others to do more with less than we thought possible. But that narrative also obscures both the way I suspect most of players experience the game much of the time. It ignores the tremendous uncompensated or undercompensated labor that the From that uh, from software relies on to make their games functional for the majority of players, mostly in the form of wikis. I made tremendous strides in the game on my own. I discovered caves and far-off lands and beat bosses that I didn't think I could. I also had a handful of fun conversations with friends. But in reality, I spent a ton of my time on my phone on ad-filled wikis. Fextra Life, Fandom, IGN, Polygon, PowerPix, Reddit. So many wikis. I don't know how many of these sites and wikis function from a paid labor perspective, but I suspect unpaid labor plays a major role. You'd be right. Maybe the folks in charge at From like to tell stories about people telling stories. But they must also know that most of the time, it's players reading the fruits of uncompensated labor of a small subset of fans to make their games playable for most others. This is not just a from problem. I'm not even sure if we should characterize it as a problem. But I thought it might. I, I think it ought to be acknowledged while we heap praise on the trust the game places in its players. Uh, it's a wonderful thing from has created, but it simply wouldn't be what it is without the work fans put in into making the game playable for others. Um, thanks, Justin. I, I thought it raised an interesting question, like about. Very much the thing that we celebrate, which is uh, the trust that from software and its games put in its players, while also acknowledging that for a lot of people, they would like to know where the thing is and how to do the thing. And you find that on wikis and walkthroughs and guides. And if you go and I did several pieces last year on Waypoint about both how the guides sort of community props up financially lots of websites and also how those people tend to be 
some of the most exploited and underpaid, despite them being a lot of the financial foundation for a lot of game websites. But I hadn't really thought about that in the context that, that Justin puts it in, or so the framing that Justin puts it in of, um, you know, do, Ren, do you think that from is, they must now maybe weren't early as much early on thinking that, look, we are building a structure for a game that will be explained by other people explaining it in the surrounding community that builds up around the game after it's released. I mean, I think that like the game is designed with that knowledge in mind. I think that the problem comes with the specific ways in which those communities are being exploited by other people, right? Like it is, I I think that it is a solid piece of game design. And in fact, like I, I think it is like in a, in a vacuum is good. I think it is a, it is an outright good uh, in a vacuum. Uh, however, I do think that like this person is right. Right, the specific industry that exists around this sucks uh, and is bad for a lot of the people who are underpaid uh, and working in it. Right, um, and that's a bummer. And I don't think it's like it's it it is one of those things where it's not like a thing you fix. I, I don't think it is a thing you can viably fix because like even if you put all that information in front of players, right, the people on the wiki still have to put the information in. If you look at the wiki of virtually any game, all that shit is in there, right? Like, the, it's going to exist no matter what. There will always be a, you know, website that is a receptacle of most information uh, that, you know, communities have on a game because it will always be easier to go through a website than it is to remember a conversation that you had with a character 18 hours ago. Um, and I think that this is like not a unique to FromSoft thing. I think it is just like the industry that has emerged from the nature of games as a medium uh, and the, you know, the way that people engage with media currently mm. uh, is a bummer. It is. Yeah, I, you know, I, Oh, go ahead, Kata. I was going to say, like, specifically in the, the form of the wikis, like, it, that is still community, right? Like, that is why those places tend to exist. And just the fact that, like, they have to, you know, they, they're they they're using ad revenue to, like, keep the servers running or, like, to make mm. themselves money is, like, a whole different kind of beast from the fact that, like, someone will probably record this information somewhere, right? Yeah. Yes, and also it is worth noting that a lot of the wiki websites uh, are have become business businesses that hire people to do this work, where it is not just like, oh, you are, you know, Dark Souls Eric, and you would like to to post all about the Drake Sword in the wiki. It's not Dark Souls Eric doing it anymore. It is someone right. who is hired to be Dark Souls Eric. At that point, it is a tool for the community and and part of the community but it is always mediated through a existing corporate architecture yeah and i mean i think you saw this pretty clearly there i remember seeing um uh formerly fanbytes imran khan who the, the news editor over there tweeting at, you know there was a steep drop off at a certain point when just the broader gaming public had kind of moved on from elden ring in like the late spring early summer period where like Elden Ring became like its own industry. It was yeah. producing an enormous amount of traffic in terms of guides, news articles, features. People just wanted to consume anything they could about Elden Ring because that game just popped uh, in a way that uh, 
even from, you know, couldn't, couldn't have expected and, and websites couldn't have expected like that's But that's why people build that stuff around games like that in the hopes that it can, it can be that sort of, sort of payoff. And so I don't, that is not, you know, the, the ad market, the underpaid labor is not from software's fault. I would be curious if I, you know, for as big as Elden Ring was, surely there are millions, millions of people, maybe tens of millions of people that played that game and didn't look up stuff like that. And that the audience that is writing into this podcast, reading about Elden Ring is going to be the type of person that's also going to look at a wiki. I is there if there's people out there, you must know them. Maybe they don't exist, <laughs> but I have to assume they do. If you have complete normal people that played this game and just sort of played it and weren't constantly consulting things or if they as a result of playing it and weren't the type of person that would consult those things found themselves doing it. I'm just curious if if anyone uh, is listening to this has people in their lives that could kind of be that sort of representative uh, kind of average person that maybe was new to the to the series and the format as a result of how popular it was. And did they were they naturally just drawn then to things like wikis? So please write in if you have any any stories about that. I'd be curious to see um, where all that fell um, elsewhere. This is very good. This comes in from Brett. Hey, Womrads, which is admirable. You know, we're, I feel we're really scraping the Womrads. bottom of the barrel when it comes to these <laughs> intros. There's one I didn't, Com I, don't points. The, I don't know if we're going to read this. In, in the event that we never read the question, I do just want to read, hold on, let me find it. Um, The shout outs to Phil from DC in case we don't ever read this. Good afternoon, motherfuckers. I'm trying, yeah. out, some different, I'm trying yeah. out some different energy for 2023. Damn right yeah. we are. So Phil, so Phil from DC, if I don't get back to your question, I just, you made me laugh really hard this <laughs> afternoon when I was looking through the questions. Uh, hey, Womrads. Not sure if the words you didn't realize, you didn't know how to pronounce bit is still going. It's probably over, but I, I felt this was a good one to conclude it on, hmm. is what I'll say. Um, if it is, as a person who has goofed it on several words, here is my take on it. Fuck it. Live your life, double down, and really dig in your heels. <laughs> I could not tell you when I realized that I didn't say pillow. I pronounce it pillow instead of pillow. Zine. <laughs> Zine instead of zine. <laughs> and contrao? Contrao? Cointro. Correctly. But by God, have I insisted on pronouncing them improperly despite friends and peers correctingly, incessantly. Not sure where the pillow comes from. Zine, because I didn't realize it was short for magazine. Contrao, likely because I learned from, learned about coin... Cointelpro. Coin, yes, early on. What, what are these things? Cointelpro? Yeah. Oh, oh buddy. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Is that US not a short answer? A lot of bad things. <laughs> yeah, the you... That is the U.S. counterintelligence program, yeah. I believe, is the that is the thing that killed a lot of, yeah, uh, of radicals in the United MK States. MK Ultra. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Because I just had that specific acronym. Early on, I thought the words looked similar. Regardless of how it came to be, the only way forward in life after these sorts of gaffes is to steal yourself and push through, purposely butchering words until the day God himself strikes you down. Fuck capitalism. Eat. Drink and buy books and then make up pronunciations as you go along. Cheers, Brett. <laughs> Extremely good. Oh, Brett, I just, yeah, fuck it. I salute you. 
but also feel bad for all of your friends who are constantly practicing. This is me with the word uh, niche. Mm-hmm. Niche. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's fine. I, 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 I vacillate. I vacillate, but my, 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 my wife really fucking hates it. I don't if like people you know, know what? what you mean. That one's it's a weird word. It's I, also I, 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 completely legitimate to, to pronounce it based on the rules of English. There are other mm-hmm. words that end that way that get pronounced that way. English is fucking made up anyways. <laughs> I know. You and Jessica agree reading this Star Wars book. Like that pronunciation doesn't that's not how I'm learning words. That's not how that letter works. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Jessica, that's not how school works, but you're you are correct in the real world. It was pointed out to me uh, um, on one of our that in one of our podcasts, I was completely oblivious to the fact that everyone else was saying Google Stadia while mm-hmm. I was saying Google Stadia the entire fucking time. <laughs> yes, just ne- just never click, ne- never registered. Completely. Wish I could wish I could own that. That went all. That's not that. Yeah. Didn't be, well, I didn't in, even. Normally that'd be like a bit or we would point it out to you and like let it keep keeping a bit. That's just yeah. I'm committed now though. I'll say study all fucking day Stadia. long. Not that oh wow. Very convenient for a thing that's shutting <laughs> no, down. I was about to say, not that I have many opportunities to. Well we're gonna yeah. well, we'll stream on the day that it shuts down and you can just say it a whole all all day that day. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Um well, that is going to do it for uh, Waypoint uh, Radio. Again, if you want to write in questions, you can do so at gamingadvice.com with the subject line questions. Um, I don't know how, to, uh, because of some recent developments in the sports world, the recent uh, injury that occurred during the Bengals-Bills game, I we'll see how Rob feels, but I can feel like a sports thing coming on sooner rather than later to address what what happened there um, in, in, in the NFL. So, if you've got any questions related to to that, um, make sure you can send it to the same place, gamingadvice.com, and just put the topic sports. Uh, but that's a wrap on today's episode of Waypoint Radio. Um, if you want more from Waypoint, you can follow us on Twitter at Waypoint, on Facebook and YouTube at Waypoint Vice. This podcast is brought to you ad-free if you're a subscriber at waypointplus.com. Uh, we had a number of podcasts go up over the holiday. We had a lengthy Game of the Year podcast uh, that... Uh, people seem to really like the format for which is kind of round robin game of the year top 10 list. I can now confidently say after it was pointed out by someone else that uh, I did steal that from the very podcast I mentioned at the top of this podcast, which was the film cast, which is that's how they do their oh. game of the year or their movie of the year awards is top 10 lists in which you wait to have the discussion till it's at the top of whoever had it at the top of their list. So shout nice. out to that uh, really good film discussion podcast that I shamelessly stole that format from because it's really good it's a really good format um and they probably stole from someone else but that's where i heard it so uh (laughs) you can listen to that our uh also our spoiler cast with austin walker talking about elden ring uh we also uh released uh two uh early waypoint plus after darks that uh myself uh rob and austin and kato did uh when waypoint plus launched those were originally waypoint plus exclusives i wasn't there for either of those no we did those by ourselves okay (laughs) yeah well i mean kato you edit them you're you're there you're that's true the the magic hand of kato is present regardless of whether you're on the microphone i was on Um, vacation i think when that happened i think that is true (laughs) i think that is true uh our theme music is Bowen. The track is Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. You can learn more at waypoint.zone slash Bowen. You can follow me on Twitter at Patrick Klopik. Ren, where can people follow you? 
at Ren or Raven. Do you have anything going on in your personal streaming? Are we on a break post Silent Hill? Uh, I I took an uh, accidental unplanned hiatus uh, after COVID. Mm-hmm. So I got COVID and it threw my whole shit off and I haven't been able to get back to it. Uh, and so I, ideally I will return to Silent Hill 3 at some point in the near future. Oh, cool. Nice. The one in the, that's the mall one, right? Yes. Um, all right, Kata, where can people follow you? At a underscore Kata underscore appears. Uh, that's us calling time this week. We'll talk to you again uh, next week. Uh, we will have a more normal schedule next week. We'll go back to streaming. I uh, got some articles in the works. We'll have, have more things going on as we uh, lean into January. Uh, until then, fuck capitalism. Go home. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.